I think it's quite clear uh, that based on the existing literature, it's a sort of double-edged sword uh, knowledge. Knowledge absolutely can contribute positively, but it can also create tunnel vision, uh, you know, a, a set mind. Uh, I think the German uh, word is Einstellung, or even the psychological word, word is Einstellung, which I, I do bang on quite a lot about on social media. But, but my point being that, um, and, and related to creativity as well, that uh, yes, if you know a lot, maybe you can combine nuggets from different disciplines and you can create something very novel and new and original. So yes, knowledge then helps creativity, but it can also uh, create a blind spot, a tunnel vision that actually is not conducive for creativity at all, because you're constantly thinking in your, um, uh, in, the, in this set mind. So, you know, knowledge as a double-edged sword, I think, is, is something that we should be really aware of. And I sometimes think that, uh, the, let's say, the, the stories on social media and other places are a little bit too evangelical about just the positive things of knowledge, a gotcha moment, right? It's all rooted in domain knowledge. We just need to teach them knowledge and then creativity will arrive automatically. And I don't think that's justified, even based on the cognitive science I know. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Greetings, fellow passengers of Spaceship Earth. Welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. My name is James Mannion, and it is my great honor to be your host. This episode features a long and I think incredibly fascinating conversation about a topic that's received a lot of attention in recent years, the role and the importance of domain knowledge in learning and memory and mastery and so on, and the limitations of that role, uh, which doesn't get quite so much airtime. And so this is a really interesting area to explore, and I'm just going to dive straight in with a quick introduction to our fantastic guest. Christian Bockhover is a professor of mathematics education at the University of Southampton. Christian is a specialist on international comparisons in mathematics education, TIMS and PEARLs and so on, also on the use of technology and on the use of innovative methodologies in teaching maths. Christian is from Holland. He was born in Amsterdam, possibly my favorite city on the planet, and was raised in Enkhuizen. I wonder if I pronounced that correctly. He is a caver, or a wannabe caver at least, and an erstwhile Britpop connoisseur, as we will hear more about shortly. If you want to get hold of Christian, he has a website that you can just Google, or you can find him on Twitter or X at cbockhover, C-B-O-K-H-O-V-E. Recently, I've been recording far more episodes than I've been able to process. And so this episode was recorded a little while ago now in March of this year, and it is now October. So it's been six months or so since we had this conversation, but there's nothing too time-based in there to my recollection. So without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent, or indeed not so recent, but still fascinating conversation with Christian Bockhover. I hope you enjoy the show.
Christian Buckhover. Welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you, James. My pleasure. How was my pronunciation there? That was absolutely perfect. Yeah, I think uh, the, the 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 end this should not be hove, but goes up. Buckhover, oh, and you did that oh. with exquisitely I, I must say <laughs> it feels like i maybe should have gone up more but anyway it'll do for now no, that, then it will sound strange so no this was a, a perfectly sensible uh, uh pronunciation yeah wonderful thank you i'll, I'll take that with me as, I, as you know i'm visiting holland uh next month and so i will take that small bit of courage with me to help me to to, to... touch courage touch courage yeah. no, <laughs> <laughs> indeed we've done our first pun already we're only a minute in um Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. I've You've been on my list for a really long time. Ever since I started this podcast, I've sort of created a long list of people that I really wanted to chat to. And you were straight into that list at the outset. Um, your work, I find fascinating. Your, your, your engagement on Twitter over the many years that we've been spending our, our far too much time on this cursed website. Um, I've very much enjoyed and learned a huge amount from. And there's a particular question or issue or debate, I suppose, um, that I thought that it would be interesting to to speak with you about in the at the start of this conversation. And it's about genericism and domain knowledge, essentially. And it's about the this the way in which the debate has focused very specifically around that, as many people know, the the, the shift towards the knowledge rich curriculum in in this country in recent years has been has been underpinned by by some sort of understandings around around um, human cognitive science and so-called cognitive architecture this metaphor that people sometimes use about the, the sort of the pillars and the steel girders and the so the, what have you the the columns that apparently exist in our minds that help us to process information and learn things um and there's been this big shift towards knowledge and away from anything that whiffs of genericism anything that's like a generic approach to learning by which I, I sort of understand that to mean something that isn't really rooted in in a in a particular subject domain so so things like for example creativity and critical thinking and problem solving and those things that are often sort of grouped uh, as you know a employability skills or 21st century skills or what have you um and yeah, there's been this backlash against all of that stuff. I mean, is that fair? Is, is that a fair summary of the situation so far? Would you say? Yeah, I think so. I I I think I uh, on on social media, but also other kinds of discussions, uh, I completely understand to some extent the allergy for terms like twenty first century skills, and then people saying, well. Uh, uh, it, it should be 22nd century or 17th <laughs> century because they're still important. Uh, and um, but, and rather than unpicking what someone means by 21st century skills, because there are origins that I am a little bit suspicious about as well. I, I recall, I think it must have been 15 or 20 years ago that some kind of alliance from the USA with Microsoft and Google were talking about... Uh, projects some, some kind of project uh, which was about the future skills 
it seemed very much led by large conglomerates, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I understand a lot of the skepticism and I, and I probably have that same skepticism and I still have it to some extent. But the problem for me always is to sort of dismiss everything out of hand immediately, completely, um, because uh, that almost never is uh, suitable or appropriate. So if you, if you are talking about 21st century skills, you could just, uh, what do you mean by them, right? Can you explain what do you mean? And try to drill down what is actually meant by them. Um, you know, just if we're thinking about steel manning the argument, I think that the best argument perhaps for those criticizing it would be uh, that there are lots of companies and organizations who, in my opinion, sometimes offer courses with very generic labels and say, well, just do this and then, you know, everything will be fine and, uh, you know, silver bullets galore. Uh, and I understand this allergy. And I think that that's, I, I even, I think, was confronted to some extent when I did the, the Metacognition Review together with Daniel Mouse with the Education Endowment Foundation, which I think you know the work quite well. And then you get requests for, you know, uh, CPD days about metacognition. Well, we can't visit each teacher or each subject one by one. So you, you have to do, let's say, a day about the topic. And it will remain fairly general because it is logistically impossible to really drill down to the uh, domain knowledge. Um, so I and I understand I understand the limitations of, of that, uh, but to then basically in how I perceived it, completely dismiss a phenomenon or an idea or a concept uh, because of that. That I thought that was really a bit short-sighted, to be honest. So and this was all that those were all the reactions that I would then give on social media. Well, this and this, and then we have to look at it in a more nuanced way, which then of course riles up certain people etc etc yeah so uh, i i do understand that but we need to drill down deeper to really uh get anywhere uh, to be honest yeah sure yes yeah okay so so you mentioned steel man just now um which is this if anyone isn't familiar with that idea it's this idea that sort of like my understanding is like the opposite of a straw man so a straw man argument is where you set your opponent up with a position that they don't really hold so that you can beat them down and then show how brilliant you are and a steel man is like the opposite of that where you sort of you you try to try to give the best account in in good faith try to give the best account of 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 the opposing point of view um so that we can really try to understand what we're wrestling with here um and it's slightly gendered term we should maybe have a steel person or a steel human um but so let's steal let's steal person this a little further um and so so my sort of like the, the simple level of understanding of this is that it's fundamentally about how important knowledge is um and so for example if if you want to think you know we were talking about creativity and critical thinking if you want to think critically or creatively about something about a really difficult topic right about like um the cost of living crisis or the energy crisis or how to reform Ofsted something that's in the news right now or you know how to reform the tax system whatever it might be then clearly like the most important like, like i wouldn't be able to really think particularly critically or creatively about the tax system because i i know very little about it although my dad was a tax inspector 
he never really, <laughs> thankfully, he never really <laughs> brought that work home with him. Um, and so you clearly need to know a lot of stuff about law and, and you know, the civil service, how the civil service works, about national domestic tax laws, about international laws, about accountancy practices. You need to know loads and loads about all of that stuff if you're going to come up with any, you know, solid reforms for how to rethink the, the, the tax system. And likewise, you can apply that to almost any any aspect of of problem solving, of, of critical thinking, of creativity. You need to know you need to know your onions, as they say. You need to know what you're talking about, um, which is sort of self evident <laughs> to some extent. You know, it's like that's clearly the case, um, and that that's sort of like part of part of the the, the struggle that I have with this is that. I, I, I mean, I, I do. So, so, so. Let's just set this in context as well while we're doing the steel man thing, and maybe you, maybe you can add to this. Um, this is seen in a historical context where, in, in, in under the new Labour administration in this country, which ended in two thousand and ten, there was a there was a big focus on skills. I was a science teacher during that time from two thousand and six, um, and there was this thing called how science works, and it was all focused on like the processes of science and like scientific experimentation and so on. And it was very vague and very woolly and it wasn't really very clear. And it wasn't really that obvious, you know, because like a science experiment, it looks quite different in biology to chemistry to physics. Like there aren't really that many common features in experimenting across different different scientific domains. It is quite quite um, specific to the to the topic. And, and there was also, there, there was a... There was a framework that was around at the time called the PLTS, sort of for personal learning and thinking skills, which sort of fitted on a single page of A4, and it was put out by some one of the government. I think it was the um, national strategies. I might be wrong, um, and it had these six skills, and it, it, and each of them underpinned by six sort of like success criteria. And one of them was something like effective participator, which was basically like teamwork. And one was creative thinker. And that was like, you know, he's able to generate ideas and, and you know, make links between things and so on. Um, and this was this was proposed to schools as a way of, of you know, helping children to become more well-rounded learners. Um, but it, it was as though you could sort of develop these these skills, these attributes, these sort of character traits, if you like, um, as though they sort of are floating free of any of any subject like knowledge domain that we can just help somebody to become more creative at a generic level without becoming like more creative at what are you going to be more creative at thinking about sculpture are you going to be more creative about poetry is this about you know creative writing is it about thinking creatively about how to solve some some you know there's a problem with your science experiment and all of these different aspects of creativity they're rooted in knowledge and so there was this sort of big backlash against any like this sort of generic skills stuff and it was like that's all nonsense and we were even at the point i understand that that the you know the word skills has been banned in um in the department for education i believe that our schools minister has banned the, it was reported in the press anyway that he had banned the words skills from appearing in uh, in any internal documentation um because they because they just sort of frame it as procedural knowledge it's just like a, a skill like juggling or riding a bike or whatever it might be um being a skilled orator that's all just 
applied knowledge and therefore we can just reframe anything that sounds like skills as knowledge so so that's my attempt at a straw man what, what do you think have I, have I missed anything or is, is that is that does that sound fairly well, you said attempt at a straw man james careful what you say <laughs> <laughs> well done <laughs> freudian slip there yeah right yeah. <laughs> no, I, re I recognize a lot of, of of the discussions you know i i think i uh, if if i first start with the the final point about the the knowledge versus skills you know i i'm i don't mind if people want to rephrase it as procedural or practical skills uh, yeah, just to, to mention uh, some names who work in the cognitive architecture field, like people like Anderson, they would, uh, and Olson, they would talk about practical uh, knowledge as skills. Uh, I thought it was a bit too much semantics, to be honest. If you if you think that, but my main point would still be uh, that whether you've got declarative uh, knowledge or practical knowledge, they are two different things, right? Because in the end, you need to do something with it, and that would be practical knowledge, and the other would be a declarative uh, knowledge. And I think there is always a risk that if you don't make that distinction and you just all call it knowledge, then um, uh, you, you wouldn't, you could be thinking that uh, a little bit of declarative knowledge will also automatically lead to the skills or the practical knowledge that you need. And I don't think that is true at all. I think there are lots of things we we uh, learn through repetition, by emulating other people, etc. There are all kinds of ways that we uh, learn new knowledge. Uh, um, and, and this knowledge does look differently also uh, from what I know uh, in terms of schemas in the head from declarative knowledge. So I prefer to make still that distinction and whether it is the distinction declarative and uh, practical or procedural knowledge, or you do the shortcut skills for the practical knowledge, I think it's perfectly fine to still use the word skills. I do understand the, again, this allergy to some extent, because if it does become this, uh, for both knowledge as a container term, and skills as a container term, basically for both, if uh, you use it as a container term to just dismiss things that I don't find very productive. So I, I guess it's a, a, to me, it, it sounds a bit too much like semantics, um, but I do know or understand where uh, it all comes from. What you just described about um, the policy level, I would call it, of, you know, uh, an emphasis on either knowledge or skills. I think that's something to, to keep in mind. I think there is a big difference between what policymakers and, and uh, departments of education decide and what teachers actually on the work floor will be doing. Because even if you have an A4 with very generic descriptions of, uh, let's say, create creativity or something like that, they will be translated to something practical by the teachers on the work floor. So let's say a mathematics teacher would take this A4 and would think, well, what does this look like in my particular classroom? Uh, and this is why I personally think that often the discussion about the uh, genericism is a little bit phony because I'm, I'm perfectly happy to accept that everything is underpinned by forms of knowledge. You know, whether we call it practical knowledge or declarative knowledge or skills or whatever, but everything is underpinned by it. But that also makes it 
a rather empty or vacuous statement, to be honest. There is nothing that we can really read without having a whole load of schemas in our head uh, from the moment we're born, or some people would even say from the moment we are conceived in the womb, right? We get all kinds of impressions that will uh, influence us in all kinds of ways. So if when, when you're saying, well, knowledge underpins everything, what are you actually, what do you actually mean? It's, a, in my opinion, a rather trivial statement, which I do understand is, let's say, incentivized by people who perhaps have a, a rather too rosy picture of these generic courses uh, or generic ideas that they want to impose on others. But I've never really liked the fact that, um, you know, it was presented as some kind of gotcha moment. Like, oh, I got you now because knowledge underpins everything. Well, sure. And now, you know, what do we do with this? And there's another thing that I think is really important. Um, and, you know, we, we talked a little bit about um, uh, studies or names that then come up. There's uh, quite an interesting um, meta review, I think, or at least a theoretical paper looking at uh, past research on knowledge from uh, Simons Meyer et al. Uh, and I can I can give you the, the reference so you can maybe put it in the link or the description. Um, and, and they looked at the role of prior knowledge and they reviewed studies that used prior knowledge. And in, I think it's quite clear uh, that based on the existing literature, it's a sort of double-edged sword uh, knowledge. Knowledge absolutely can contribute positively, but it can also create tunnel vision, uh, you know, a, a set mind. Uh, I think the German uh, word is Einstellung, or even the psychological word, word is Einstellung, which I, I do bang on quite a lot about on social media. But, but my point being that, um, and, and related to creativity as well, that, uh, yes, if you know a lot, maybe you can combine nuggets from different disciplines and you can create something very novel and new and original. So, yes, knowledge then helps creativity, but it can also uh, create a blind spot, a tunnel vision that actually is not conducive for creativity at all, because you're constantly thinking in your uh, uh, in, the, in this set mind. Uh, and anecdotally, I will say that as a mathematics teacher in the in the Netherlands, I, I was always quite struck as an example that if you gave these riddles with, you know, two people together are uh, 70 years old, uh, the difference between them is uh, 11 years. How old are these two people, right? These types of riddles that primary school children, when they came into secondary school, were quite good at solving these without any algebraic knowledge. And they almost seem to become worse at it the moment that they learned uh, algebra, because they were then thinking, ooh, x plus y equals 70, x minus y. They were thinking in terms of algebra that we had taught. And of course, I can teach them to do that, right? That's not the point. The point is that um, the, the algebra, the, the added knowledge, changed the way that they looked at the original riddle that I would pose them. So, you know, knowledge as a double-edged sword, I think, is, is something that we should be really aware of. And I sometimes think that, uh, the, let's say, the, the stories on social media and other places 
are a little bit too evangelical about just the positive things of knowledge, a gotcha moment, right? It's all rooted in domain knowledge. We just need to teach them knowledge and then creativity will arrive automatically. And I don't think that's justified, even based on the cognitive science I know. Yeah, yeah. And that's what that's what you often hear. Thank you for that. You, you, you often hear people saying things like 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 the means and the ends are not the same so they sort of say like if you like like that we all agree yeah. that we want people to be creative critical thinkers but to get there that doesn't involve practicing creativity or critical thinking along the way the way that you the, the way that you get there is to create knowledgeable people because because creativity and and criticality are rooted in knowledge and therefore as you say it's like this is a done deal um, and it's I always come back to this phrase like necessary but not sufficient. You know, it feels like like the knowledge base absolutely. And I do think that there was a necessary correction. I do think that there was clearly like lots of very woolly generic stuff going around in the two thousands in this country and elsewhere. Um, and I think that there was a necessary correction. I do think that people had overlooked the importance of domain knowledge. I think that, the, 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 as I put in the book, I think that the trads are half right. You know, I think that they, 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 make, they make a good point. But also that point has been made now, <laughs> like many times very forcefully. And I wonder whether, whether like once the dust has settled, that we can, that we can survey this, this debate and sort of think, well, hang on, is it such a clear black and white thing? Uh, as some people make out and so so I think it might be useful I don't want this to be to get too technical but there's one paper that I know that you've written about quite a bit in the past um, that I think might be useful just to frame this um, for, for the benefit of listeners there's this paper by um, Tricot and Sweller or it might be Trico and Sweller Andre Trico or Tricot and Sweller called and the title is Domain Specific Knowledge and why teaching generic skills does not work. So the title is pretty, pretty bold. And then I'll, I'll just read the abstract if I may, because I think it might help again for the benefit of listeners. So it says, domain general cognitive knowledge has frequently been used to explain skill when domain specific knowledge held in long-term memory may provide a better explanation. An emphasis on domain general knowledge like domain general being hyphenated just just to be clear so it's not saying general knowledge it's like domain general as in as rather than domain specific so an emphasis on domain general knowledge may be misplaced if domain specific knowledge is the primary factor driving the acquisition of intellectual skills it then says we will trace the long history of attempts to explain human cognition by placing a primary emphasis on domain general skills with a reduced emphasis on knowledge and will indicate how otherwise unintelligible data can be easily explained by assumptions concerning the primacy of domain knowledge. And that, that word primacy then leads into the stuff around um, um, Geary's theory around, you know, biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge. Um, and it then goes on to say that primacy can be explained by aspects of evolutionary educational psychology. And I think that that's what it's referring to. And we'll maybe get into Geary in a moment. Um, and then it finally says, once the importance of domain specific knowledge is accepted, instructional design theories and processes are transformed. 
And so this is trying to make a very strong case that essentially we've been barking up the wrong tree for all these years with all this domain general stuff. It's all misconceived because of the way that our minds evolved over millions of years. We really need to get this right. And once we understand this, we can completely transform the way we think about teaching and learning. So that's the abstract. Um, what's your what's your take on on this paper and the argument that they that they set out here? Yeah, this must be the paper that I, well, one of the papers that I have written about certainly on social media the most. So I will give the disclaimer that there are quite a few people who completely disagree with my reading of all of this, mm. and I disagree with them. So there we are. Uh, yeah, so Trico and Sweller, yeah, well, you said we'll come to that, maybe we'll come to that later on, but it is quite important, I think, to note that uh, the whole argument, or the most of the argument, is rooted in evolutionary psychology, and I've got opinions about that, <laughs> uh, which, uh, and especially Geary, uh, I, I, in, my, in my view, Sweller is the only one, really, who has adopted those ideas which doesn't mean that I'm saying that they are incorrect, but uh, especially the origins of using these evolutionary psychology arguments, in my opinion, is a little bit opportunist. Um, we'll come to that later. So that's one thing I, I want to say. And what is really interesting in this paper is that they, in, because I actually like the paper, uh, it's, I disagree with some elements, but there are elements that actually undermine their own argument, which I find quite fascinating. But people have told me that I'm completely misunderstanding uh, this argument. But there, let me just read one section, because I, I was sort of sus suspecting that you might bring this paper up. That at one point, uh, there is a section where they explain that a major point of departure of this paper from the nearly universal consensual view that can best be summarized by the suggestion that knowledge imparted during instruction includes some mixture of domain general and domain specific information, I think is quite interesting. So they, they realize that they have an extreme viewpoint in this article, that is it's all completely domain specific because they literally say, we argue that all educational relevant knowledge acquired during instruction is and only is domain specific. That's their claim. Mm. But they realize that they are departing from a consensual view, which I think is quite funny to some extent, because in a sense, they are the, the preamble basically says, well, we are the outlier and other people think differently. And some people really think that it's great that they are breaking away from this. But, you know, to me, in my book, it does mean something that a, consen a consensus is not always correct, but it does say something that the consensual view says it's a mix, and they admit this as a mixture of domain general and domain specific information. And I thought that always was quite interesting. I've highlighted it, I think, must be dozens of times. But then people tell me, yeah, but, uh, you know, what is wrong with the paper? Or uh, to, to tell me explicitly what is incorrect, that sort of stuff. And what also is interesting in this paper is that they, they don't really prove uh, or evidence the claim that uh, relevant knowledge only is domain specific. The way they 
show this, and I said proof, I shouldn't be as a mathematician, the proof, proofs are only in mathematics, they are not in social science, but anyway, the only, uh, the argument that they do is they call this uh, evidence for this suggestion comes from omission, because they cannot find domain general cognitive strategies, they say, well, it must be only domain specific. And I, I, have, I have big problems with the way, this way of reasoning because we can't find any evidence for, let's say, B. We must assume that we were right all along, which is A, it must all be domain specific. <laughs> when actually they've already, in my opinion, said that the consensus is around a mixture of both, which to me sounds perfectly reasonable because I, uh, I think it caters for both uh, views. It's, it's, it highlights that domain specific knowledge is really important. But it also admits or you know appreciates the fact that there are domain general schemas that we the we often use to determine things. And in my opinion, actually, if you look at the cognitive architecture uh, that even Sweller proposes, there are elements that are uh, you know schemas, for example, that are stored in long-term memory that uh, are uh, more general than just. Uh, a, a specific uh, nugget of knowledge, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really interesting that the paper, in my opinion, sort of undermines its arguments. Uh, and it does so, uh, and interrupt me if I'm going on a little bit too much, because it's quite, actually it's quite nice to talk about a paper that, that not many people talk about, because you see it all the time if the domain-specific argument is made. I, I've done several you know, guesses before I then saw the reference list, oh, they're probably going to cite Trico and Sweller. And ev almost every time I was right, because it yeah. is the go-to place. So there's another part where they undermine their own argument, because they actually give two, um, let's say, exceptions or two, they raise two very good points. And this is why I do like the paper. Uh, be, uh, but people see, tend to forget this. There is a section where they uh, say, even literally say, uh, people may learn the different contexts in which an already acquired general skill can be applied. So, uh, and they cite uh, um, an article by uh, Yusuf et al. And again, I, I can give you the, the link. It's actually from, the, from that actual paper where there was a general problem solving group and there was a conventional problem solving group. Uh, and uh, actually the, this general problem solving group did uh, do better than the conventional problem solving group. The problem, however, is that problem solving is, 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 is also a quite a difficult term to uh, define. But I just thought it was really interesting in this paper, and that's, I think, the bottom line that I'm getting at here, that there are several parts where I think they undermine their own argument. Um, another thing, and that's the, the final thing I will probably say about this, because otherwise it will become a very too technical. <laughs> they also, so, so they say uh, it's very much um, aimed at teaching generic skills, right? The, the whole term teaching. And the paper, in my opinion, is a little bit ambivalent what teaching actually means. So if I am a teacher and I, I create uh, circumstances in my lesson that allow for uh, problem solving, for example, that's not instruction, but I would still call it teaching. So 
there is a bit of ambivalence what is actually meant with teaching, because I do think there is a difference there. If, if people would ask me, do you think you can teach creativity? So I basically, you know, I, I talk about creativity for 15 minutes to people and then they become better creative problem solvers. I would say, well, of course not, right? That's not gonna, that's not gonna work. But if perhaps I create the circumstances in which um, uh, students are able to, uh, you know, think about a, a problem or discuss a problem or something like or dialogic teaching, for example. So you create the circumstances. I would still call it teaching, obviously, because everything that takes place in the lesson that I'm teaching as a teacher, I would call teaching. Uh, and there is a section where they actually uh, say that uh, well, they say something about teaching, instruction, etc., and and the differences. And I think that's also, let's say, an area where the article is not the the strongest. But as I said, uh, other opinions <laughs> exist about the about this. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So, 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 as you say, like lots of this paper, lots of this argument rests on this this distinction that Richard Geary draws, um, this evolutionary biologist. Is he I think it's David, by the way, David. Oh, I beg Geary. your pardon, sorry. Who's Richard Geary? That must be someone else. Anyway. Richard Geary, you're thinking about Richard Geary. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh. How much officer and a gentleman, too many times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so not rich, not Richard Gear, David Geary. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. So, so he he's got this interesting theory, this model of um, biologically primary, uh, <laughs> biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge. Could you please just explain what this theory is again? Let's still let's still person it before we sort of start to think about how it how it might be mis misapplied in some in some context. Yeah, there is a specific terminology uh, that they're using, and I, I don't, don't know it by heart, but in, in, a, in a nutshell, you could say that uh, uh, primary, bio, biologically primary knowledge is the knowledge that, uh, let's say, uh, doesn't need any instruction that you acquire automatically because of uh, biology. I think they go as far as evolution, etc. Uh, and biologically secondary knowledge uh, is uh, knowledge that we will only learn if it's instructed or taught to us. Mm -hmm. And I'm already mincing my words a little bit because I think um, one of the big things that concerning this distinction is, well, what for one, the distinction is not very clear cut, in my opinion. And this, again, is sort of, I would say, uh, admitted uh, in the literature because um, you can actually use prime, biologically primary knowledge for a biologically secondary knowledge teaching. Sure. So, so just, let's just let's just come up with some like specific examples for the benefit of listeners if they're struggling with the, with these two distinctions. So, biologically primary knowledge. Is is given as things like speaking and listening, um, like certain basic problem solving capabilities, like means end analysis, thinking about what like you know causes and effects and consequences and so on, face recognition, right? Like stuff that's just like 
hardwired into us through millions of years of evolution that there are just some things that we are hardwired to know how to do. Um, and it's interesting that they they put speaking and I think they put speaking spoken language in this category in that in that paper by Trico and Sweller, which we'll possibly come back to later on. Um, and then biologically secondary knowledge, uh, or I think that they sometimes call them biologically secondary cognitive capacities or abilities or something like you say. There's some quite specific language information as well, which is it's it's interesting that they 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 constantly change those words. Yeah, that's yeah, right, notable. Yeah. 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 And so th this includes things like written literacy and numeracy and knowing about history and stuff like that. Right. The stuff that we don't we're not we're not um, evolved to know that stuff. And you can live in a, in a complete state of ignorance as, as to those things. And so and I've seen Sweller talking about this previously. And he said, like, for example, if you look at um, at literacy rates, like before the before schooling became widespread in the sort of like late 18th century or whatever 17th century the, the the illiteracy rate was like sort of 90 percent or something like that like it was only like scholars and clerics who were taught how to read and write and then in schools were invented and we started to explicitly instruct people in how to read and write and now the the the, the, the literacy rate has been sort of reversed like globally i think it's whatever it is like 90 percent of people can read or write to some extent don't quote me on those figures. I'm just sort of like citing from memory, but that's just sort of to illustrate the point that that that, that they're making that um, that this biologically secondary stuff doesn't come naturally, but we can teach it quite effectively, um, and so we need to focus on that stuff and not on the other stuff. Is that essentially? Yeah, yeah. I would I would say that's essentially the argument that is being made. Okay. And so, what what are the what are the good things about about using this this argument? What what's the what's the so so the case that like how how do Trico and Sweller in that paper how do they use this distinction between biologically primary and secondary knowledge to make this case against teaching generic skills? So that's a really tense specific. Yeah, question. yeah, I'm, I'm 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 combining lots of different schemas in my head now to hopefully get to a sensible answer. Uh, well, in, I'm going to start, and I know we were steel personing, but I think it's the first thing I need to say. There is an again an interesting paragraph where uh, they basically say, "Well, we shouldn't make the mistake, uh, uh, although there is this distinction." to say that biologically primary knowledge isn't important for schooling because it is important for schooling, which I think is quite interesting. This is a, a sentence that often seems to be forgotten if this article is cited, right? Because it's often cited in contexts of, oh, look, we can't, you know, these generic skills, we can't teach them, so we, we shouldn't be doing anything with them. And actually, in my opinion, again, the paper actually says, well, it's still important. Uh, there even are a couple of uh, examples that uh, I think uh, uh, some people on social media bring up quite a lot as well. Things like embodied cognition, uh, things that are firmly, I would say, in the in in the camp of uh, purportedly being biologically primary knowledge, but still are important to address in schooling. And I guess that's, uh, so a good thing I would say is that we have started to think perhaps more about 
what schooling is for, right? We, 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 these debates should and could lead to getting more clarity of what uh, does schooling need to provide. However, the big issue is that we value different things. So let, let's say you or other people might say, well, it's really important that uh, uh, metacognition gets a firm place or metacognitive strategies get a firm place or study skills get a firm place. And others might say, well, immediately say sometimes, well, that's too generic. It doesn't, it's not, it's biologically primary. We will learn that automatically anyway, and they will dismiss it. So I think potentially if we would really zoom in to the debate of what types of knowledge are really important for schooling, we could flesh that out to some extent. I think we never will completely agree but there is the potential to think about it. But in practice, perhaps that's the nature of social media. We just use it as a club to batter each other and say, well, this is important and this is not important. Um, that, that's at least the, the, the way that I recall uh, the discussions if this, when this paper is cited, which is really a shame because as I said, I've now cited, I think three or four parts that I think some people would be really surprised about that it's actually in the paper because it's quite uh, nuanced. And then at other points like the title or uh, in the parts where in my opinion, there is a rather simplistic view of uh, all the chess uh, literature because chess is always the go-to domain for anything regarding knowledge then I think it becomes a little bit too uh, simplistic. So I would certainly recommend that people read it themselves um, for that reason. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, and I, yeah, I agree with you that it's, you know, it's a really interesting paper, but it, it, it is interesting that it is an outlier. It, take, it takes a very extreme position um, saying that because, because of this distinction of biologically primary and secondary knowledge, that we, that we therefore can't, um or shouldn't teach generic skills and and just to sort of to to like full disclosure like my my in my interest in this area is because for the much of the last what's it been now like nearly 15 years i've been like very involved in in self-regulated learning so i was a secondary school science teacher and then we at my school um, we implemented a year seven, a taught learning to learn curriculum, learning what became known as the learning skills curriculum. Um, <clears throat> and it was an amazing thing that like we were given five lessons a week with the whole of year seven. And the senior team just put huge amount of trust in us as a team of five teachers. And they just said, over to you, like, here's a blank sheet of paper, whatever it is that you think these kids need to become more effective, proactive, confident you know, self-regulated learners, independent learners, um, you know, you, you should try and do that. And and you could clearly see the need for that. Like, like the, 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 it's the number one thing. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm doing training on this, I always start by asking teachers, if you could wave your magic wand, if you could like, you know, just snap your fingers and change something about your students, what would you change? And it's almost always the same thing. They say, I want them to be more independent. I want them to be more proactive. I want them to meet me halfway. They say things like, I want them to be less needy. 
you know i want them to just like to actually respond to my feedback and and i think that what happens in schools is that we you know like we have this limited amount of time and resource and there's this there's this big sort of like moral imperative to do the to do the best that we can in this in this finite amount of time that we have and so the adults decide what needs to be learned and when and how and for how long and so on and we set deadlines and we you know we swoop in and intervene we use the language of intervention all the time if it looks like a child is not going to to meet such a deadline we swoop in and intervene and we essentially micromanage the 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 children and young people with the best of intentions um to to make the most efficient use of time but i think that as a as a side effect of that as a sort of as an unfortunate consequence the the children and young people often become like dependent on the teacher to sort of to do everything for them and you you see all of these very sort of like helpless behaviors i did i asked i asked that on on twitter once like what's the most help what are the the helpless questions that you get asked at school and i was inundated with hundreds of responses and it was things like you know like um i've done question one what should i do now or you know where should i put the rubbish or where do i get the water from or you know like how do you spell tv you know just like there there are loads and loads of, of examples of questions that that kids ask but when they or I've, I've reached the bottom of my page what should i do now the end of page itis you know and these are really quite widespread in schools and teachers especially at primary but at secondary as well they often talk about that the sense of feeling weighed down by all of these sort of questions that kids really should know the answers to but they just sort of become so dependent on their teacher that they that they don't have that sort of get up and go that spark that curiosity proactiveness you know like asking questions and so on and that's what we tried to address through this curriculum um and and it focused on like you mentioned metacognition earlier as something that is sometimes as you say sometimes is dismissed i saw somebody describe it on on twitter not so long ago as generic metacognition wool right so though it's just like this just just this cloud of nonsense and we can dismiss it out of hand along with everything else that whiffs of genericism um, and so we, we, we focused on, we focused these, uh, uh, rather we identified these three key concepts that we thought were really powerful in helping kids to become more confident, effective, proactive, self-regulated learners. Metacognition was one, and we'll, we'll come back to this a bit later on, because I know that you and I have, have locked horns in the past about how, about what metacognition is and how to define it. And I, and I, um, I differ from the, um, the EEF's definition of metacognition and self-regulation. Um, we, we'll come back to that later on. So, so, so we identified these three concepts, metacognition, self-regulation, and oracy. And for the benefit of listeners, and I'll just do a very succinct summary of my understanding of these ideas, metacognition, people often refer to it as, as thinking about thinking. It's cognition about cognition, hence metacognition. Um, I think of it more helpfully, I think, as monitoring and controlling your thought processes. And, and those two words come up a lot. And I think, I think that Sweller, is it Sweller and Merenbauer or something? I'm not, not, not sure how to pronounce that person's name, um, have um, written about the importance of monitoring and control. Or maybe it was Paul Kirshner. I might be mistaken. Is it Kirshner and Meren, von Merenbauer or something? Anyway, 
monitoring. Oh, that could be. Might, might it be? Might it be the book that they did? The, maybe the ten steps to complex learning or something. That's like it. That. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and they 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 talk about the importance of monitoring and control, and that's absolutely the 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 heart of it. One leads to the other. The monitoring, the noticing, paying attention, describing, naming things, and that could be with regard to your thoughts. So, for example, you know, if you notice that you are really worried about something about an exam that's coming up or if you really if you notice that you're catastrophizing things if you notice that you really like as a student that you see maths or physics or whatever it might be PE is coming up on the on the timetable next and you get that like visceral sort of response you're like oh not that again or or it might be like oh yay amazing it's that again you know but that's sort of you know like if you notice how you're responding to things then you can start to change those responses you can start to think oh well maybe this is just a story that i'm telling myself maybe i'm just telling myself this story that this is going to go really badly or that i hate maths and i'll never be any good at it or whatever and maybe that's not true maybe i could maybe i could tell myself a different story what if that isn't true and maybe and so it's really quite an emancipatory thing i think metacognition because you you notice your trains of thought and how you respond in, because of your genetics and your environment and your teaching and your programming. And actually, it's, it allows you to, to imagine different positive possible futures and to work towards those. So, so that's metacognition. Self-regulation is the second one. And that I define as almost like the mirror image of metacognition. Self-regulation is the monitoring and controlling your feelings and behaviors and this is much more to do with human action rather than just what's going on in your head it's how you interact with the external environment and that then we use the word feelings because that could be physical feelings like i was just saying you know like you you mentioned earlier we're embodied creatures and if you're nervous about something that might manifest as a tightness in your chest or maybe fidgety fingers or your legs you know bouncing up and down under the table if you're nervous about something or it could be emotional feelings of course as well um, and then oracy, which is spoken language, this word that was invented 50 years ago or so now to, in an attempt to give spoken language equal status to written literacy and numeracy. And for a whole range of reasons, that still hasn't really, that's, that, that isn't reflected in the way that schools are run. We still put far, far more attention on written work than we do on, on spoken language, even though 90% of our communication in life is through uh, it's much more through spoken language than it is through through the written word. So um, we, we identified those three characteristics, which, you know, the traditionalist listeners, if there are any out there <laughs> among us, might be thinking, oh, they all sound really generic and, and woolly. Um, but there is really strong evidence, I think, that we can develop each of those three things and that they can be applied in generic ways across different subject domains. So that if you become more metacognitive as a person, that can become habitual. You can, you can habitually become more reflective. You can habitually notice things. You can habitually pay attention to things and, and to start asking yourself questions about, you know, whether this might be the only way of thinking about this or whether something else might be true. And especially oracy, like spoken language and communication, like the, the the kids in this study that we what the the the, the learning skills curriculum that I mentioned that turned out to be an eight year study because we followed four cohorts of of children from year seven when they when they enter secondary school through to year eleven when they do their GCSEs and we had one control cohort and then three learning to learn cohorts 
and the control cohort and the, and the first learning to learn cohort had very similar prior attainment when they entered the school. So it made for a reasonably fair comparison, but it wasn't randomized controlled trial. Like technically it was like a historical control group. Um, and they did amazingly well. Those learning to learn kids went on to achieve the best set of results that that school had ever seen by quite some margin, by a significant margin. And it was especially beneficial for disadvantaged children. So the disadvantaged gap closed from the bottom up almost completely. And it, but, but having said that, it was also beneficial for non-disadvantaged children. So they, they did better than their counterparts in the control group. But still, we saw this, this huge, you know, accelerated gains, if you like, among disadvantaged kids. Um, and when we asked them, does learning skills help you learn more effectively in your subject learning across the curriculum? And if so, how? And we asked them that repeatedly. Um, they nearly always said, yes, I think it does help me to learn more effectively. Not always. Some of them didn't, but the majority of them did. And most of them said it was about confidence, that, that, that they had developed confidence that through, through this like ex explicit emphasis on oracy, on spoken language. And we threw the kitchen sink at it. We were looking at paired talk, small group talk, circle time sessions, weekly philosophical inquiry sessions, structured debates. They were having to present to each other all the time in groups, to the whole class, to assemblies even presenting stuff to to external you know um to to parents and to primary school kids and what have you so spoken language was absolutely huge and that is really transformative when you teach people how to speak and listen it's not like learning a skill in the way that we think of as a skill as being like learning to juggle or how to ride a unicycle like I don't know how to ride a unicycle or juggle but I don't feel like my life has been particularly impaired by that but I have developed, you know, my ability to speak and listen in a range of different contexts. And that has transformed my life and opened so many doors. And, it, and it's changed my conception of myself. And you can see this in young people. I know that, sorry, I know I've been talking for a while. I'll just say one more thing. We, we, we run this one day workshop sometimes for kids called the language of power. And we're teaching them about spoken language, presentational talk through the lens of rhetoric. So rather than focusing on the physical like the body language and voice projection and stuff, which can often make people quite self-conscious when they're standing at the front of a room. We focus on language features and, you know, using rhetorical devices and so on. And we say, you know, at the end of today, you're going to give a speech to the whole room. And often the kids are like, put the brakes on and they're like, there's absolutely no way that that's happening. That is just like too far out of my comfort zone. It's not happening. And then of course, by the end of the day, they've all done it or with very, very rare exceptions. If somebody has got like an acute, social anxiety you know we don't push it but the vast vast majority of young people go on to do it and you can see you can see it and, and you can hear what they say it's they, they almost like walk an inch taller it changes them it changes how they think about themselves it changes how they think about what they might go on to do in the future and it transfer and it transfers and it translates and, and spills over into other areas of their life and they often talk about things like how you know, like the learning skills curriculum by, by helping them to develop these so-called generic skills that they were able to communicate with their family better, that they had better relationships with their siblings, that, 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 that they felt that they could be seen. I remember an interview with one girl where she said that she felt invisible previously and she felt like she could be seen now, that she was seen by her friends, she, her friendships groups had flourished, 
She was able to get her needs met by communicating her needs in subject learning across the curriculum. And, and there, there are many other examples, I think, that we could look at, but I, I, I won't talk about them right now. But, you know, like examples of, you know, like things that we can do with regard to with regard to critical thinking that are applicable across a wide range of knowledge domains. Likewise, with regard to creativity, likewise, with regard to problem solving. It seems to me that that it's that it's clear that 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 these things are real, right? That that, that they're not nonsense. That they don't not exist. That the, you can't not teach them, like Trico and, and Sweller suggest. You absolutely can. And I've spent the last like twelve years doing it. And 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 like you say, like the consensus is that that this, uh, you know, is doable. Like like just if, if I may, the, 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 there was a quote from the Dylan William. Um, wrote about our book. I feel a bit. It, doesn't, it feels a bit wrong to be like blowing my own trumpet. It's like a reverse name drop. But no, go for uh, it, James. Go for it. But Dylan <laughs> said very kindly. I don't know of any other book that provides such clear guidance on how to harness the common elements of learning across the curriculum, bringing greater coherence to people's experiences in school. And that's important. That coherence thing because. The school day looks really disjointed, but once they realize that there are common elements of learning across all of their different subjects, that can really help them to experience school as a much more joined up thing. Um, and so he says, bringing greater coherence to pupils' experiences in school, while at the same time respecting real differences between school subjects. Um, and I wonder, as a very final point on this, whether the way that we can square this circle is that all of this stuff that I've just been talking about, about self-regulated learning, metacognition, self-regulation, oracy, those aren't generic woolly skills. They are a knowledge base in and of themselves. And that's declarative knowledge, understanding what metacognition is and what self-regulation is and what talk rules are, for example. And they're also procedural knowledge. They're applied knowledge or what you might call skills. They are practiced knowledge that can be that can be you know implemented in a wide range of of contexts and so it seems like they are themselves a domain a domain but domains of knowledge aren't like like, like aren't completely separate to other domains they of course overlap and this one like self-regulated learning is a is a broad knowledge domain which can be applied in in other knowledge domains and it seems to me that that's how we could potentially square this circle but maybe that's just me i don't know what do you think Oh, there's so much that you just said. Yeah, this is going to be tough, I think, to, to... So, well, let's start with the last thing you said, sort of these different knowledge domains. I don't think knowledge domains overlap, I would say, by definition. Uh, there are, you know, super domains, let's say large domains, that then have subdomains, and then every subdomain has more subdomains. It, it just depends on how far you drill down, really, right? Uh, you need to know the... The concept of a variable to understand an equation and an equation is part of calculus and calculus is part of and and there there are you know we we haven't really clearly defined all these domains and and we don't really have to but they certainly overlap and they sometimes are part of general domains and they sometimes uh, are uh, compose, composed of uh, subdomains uh, so I think most topics probably are simultaneously part of a, a larger domain and are subdivided until you go to basically uh, letters. And I think there's even a quote from one famous old philosopher 
along those lines. But anyway, that, that that's one thing. Um, every time when I have these discussions, I always am quite surprised how much overlap and coherence there actually is. So you, so it's great that you gave the, the, the quote from Dylan William, but you also used, I think, the term common elements or something like that, which I think makes makes me think of Thorndike's work from centuries ago, or uh, mm. at least a century, uh, in the in the context of transfer, because we're often talking about those types of things like near transfer. To what extent something you learn can be used for a a domain that is close to the domain where you're at. Near transfer is relatively uh, it is hard, but easier than far transfer. Far transfer, uh, which is just for the listener, uh, where the knowledge you acquire in one domain can be used in a completely different domain. And of course, the problem is this completely different because people often exaggerate a little bit. Well, were the, I think they, they like to sometimes cite this baseball paper. I think if Steven Spielberg managed the Yankees, I think Daisy Christodoulou likes to cite this paper. That's right, yeah. Um, where there are com two completely different domains. And then they say, well, if you're an expert in one domain, you're not going to be an expert in the other domain. And yeah, okay, if you choose some completely different uh, I, I can see that argument, uh, but what if there are some similarities, right? And that often is the case. We as humans can't even help ourselves where we are trying to look for patterns. We use heuristics from experiences from the past, which we use in new situations. I think in the past, I gave the example of car driving. You know, I, this is in England, I have to drive on the left-hand side. I, I fairly quickly you know, understood how to drive a car in England, even though it was not completely the same. Then people will say, yeah, but that's very close to each other. But rather than dismiss things out of hand, why are we not talking about, so where does it overlap? Where do domains overlap? Where do we think there might be some transfer taking place, whether it's near or far? And that's what I dislike about uh, uh, many of the discussions that basically immediately out of hand dismiss things. And I think there's a there's a basis for looking more deeply uh, for this because there are quite a, a lot of interesting things that we could look at. You know, things like uh, you gave the example of um, Oracy for for example, and interestingly. As we talked about Trico and Sweller, they do say that uh, biologically primary knowledge, which, you know, speaking, as you say, sort of was sort of uh, ascribed to that particular domain. And they say that can be used for biologically secondary uh, knowledge as well. So in my opinion, they're basically saying, well, learning to speak and oracy can be a very powerful, uh, you know, element of the normal classroom. Uh, and you can learn a lot from that. There is research about uh, self-management um, with in cognitive load theory, for example, which is really interesting and in where you teach children to learn heuristics to self-manage their cognitive load. They were older children, students perhaps, uh, but you know, it's not as if the literature shows it is not possible at all. There is an interesting special issue on uh, where people, uh, researchers from self-regulated learning 
in co cognitive load theory are exploring, uh, you know, where are the, the points of agreement and where are the points of disagreement? So if I look at the research, I think there is a lot of, uh, there are lots of attempts to, you know, come to some kind of coherent picture where there is a place for, let's, let's say the consensus, uh, a combination, a mixture of domain general and domain specific information as cited from Trico and Sweller. It's just a bit of a shame that, and maybe that's just the, na the human nature that when you get to uh, discussions on social media or other discussions, there is less of this, uh, you know, uh, intention to actually try and find the common ground rather than the, 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 the differences. Um, and that's, I think, really a shame because I think there are lots of overlap. But another one is Geary, for example, talks a lot about motivation to control. That's the literal term he uses. So, uh, so and, and you know all the discussions on social media about motivation and some with some even insisting that achievement leads to motivation and not the other way around, which to me is completely mind-blowing statement because uh, even anecdotally and, and from our own personal experience, but also based on the research, it's reciprocal, right? If you If you like doing something, you probably will do it better and if you do it better, you will like it more. If I'm really bad at something, I'm, I'm just going to procrastinate and not do it at all. And, and you cannot just, you know, dismiss these types of ideas. And I think the literature also shows that they should not be dismissed because they are a two-way street. They are reciprocal. You talked about confidence. You know, if you're confident, then uh, you're probably going to do better. And if you do better, you become more confident. <laughs> and the other way around. I think that almost no one w w w uh, has no examples of this from their from their youth or even in adulthood when you do stuff. That's just seems to me common sense. And I find it a little bit disappointing, but I'm sure other people will find uh, my view disappointing. But that often on social media, it just is dismissed out of hand when actually these types of conversations that we're having now should happen all the time. And I think they do happen, but just, just not always on social media and in, let's say, the, 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 the forum of public debate. And, we, and that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I think that I've made the mistake in the past of thinking that that the debate as it plays out on Twitter is 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 the debate <laughs> essentially, um, and it's a bubble. It's a small bubble, and there are many people outside of it. And it's a very particular bubble. It's occupied and dominated by people with very particular views on things, um, and it's very tribal, you know, and and often gets very heated and quite unpleasant. And it's like um, like like feelings run deep with this stuff you know which is which is interesting to note and I, I, I it's all with 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 the best of intentions you know everybody's trying oh, completely, to completely yeah. to, to to create a, a better way of educating current and future generations of kids it's a beautiful thing and i think we sometimes you know lose sight of that um having said that let's have some beef about metacognition <laughs> um so so yeah, like, do you, do you want to just explain a bit about the work that you did with with um, with Daniel Mersch? Did you say is that how you pronounce his name? 
Yeah, mouse. Yeah, the, mouse. the 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 UI sound in the, in the lowlands is uh, is one of the hardest. To, together with the the G, the G is only Scottish people can pronounce the G <laughs> from Loch Lomond, I guess, uh, which sometimes causes some fun uh, because actually my mother is English, so she can't pronounce the G very well either. And the UI sound, and another one is the EU sound, the O. Uh, so, which is quite, you know, given Brexit and all all that, the EU is is uh, <laughs> uh, the, the O the O sound in uh, Dutch. So that mouse, explains a yeah. lot. Right, yeah. interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, that. So this was. Uh, so uh, just to be clear, I did not do the guidance report from the Education Endowment Foundation. Yeah. Um, uh, only Daniel Mouse uh, was author on that. But the guidance report on metacognition that the Education Endowment Foundation did was based on a, a larger uh, meta review of the literature available. And, and it's not a meta analysis because we didn't look, uh, we looked more broadly at all the studies that concerned metacognition. And there's a lot to say about this container term and what does it mean? Because there were uh, thousands of articles to review, obviously. Mm. Uh, but we did the underpinning literature review on which the guidance report was based. Um, and we did this on the basis of a couple of uh, questions that a, a steering group uh, uh, consisting of Daniel and, uh, and the EEF constructed. Um, and that underpinning review, I think, is still uh, downloadable or can be visited on the on the website. So that's. And you came to me. I think at one point saying that, uh, well, we had different views on models of metacognition, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, and you, you know, you met, you like, so, so we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. I, I did really enjoy the review and I learned a lot from it. Um, there's just in particular the, the way in which the guidance report, um, and also the, and that's based on the underpinning literature review that you did, defines self regulated learning. And and so with that, and I had a few problems with it, but but and I'd be interested to get into this, and I hope that this isn't too too overly technical for listeners. But I do think that it's really important that we have clear understandings around what these words are and what they mean in practice, because after all, the EEF, in my view, correctly recognizes that metacognition and self regulation are like, well, in terms of their their, their weird little league table, the, the the teaching and learning toolkit is at the top of the league this is like the arsenal of of um of educational ideas metacognition and self-regulation um and we do need to have clarity around this and as you say there there are thousands of papers written about them and there is there, there was a, a lack of understanding there was a really good article in 2008 i believe Dins, dinsmore et al where they reviewed hundreds and hundreds of articles about these ideas of metacognition self-regulation and self-regulated learning which is a, a separate thing um and they found that only in about half of the papers did the researchers even bother to offer a definition and then when those definitions were offered there was quite often overlap but there was also quite often like distinctions and, and dissimilarities um and so the eef have got that the, their definition that they say that the that the self-regulated learning is this broad umbrella term, which comprises three things. One being cognition, 
right? Like knowledge about stuff and and like the me like mental processes. So cognition, people often sort of like associate it with thinking, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's like 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 mental processes. It's like thinking. It's like beliefs and and remembering and forgetting and you know making metaphors between things. There's like loads of different ways in which in which cognition can play out. So cognition, first of all, which is interesting because you have to have something to be metacognitive about, if you like. So you can see the rationale there. So the first one is cognition. The second one is metacognition, which the EF defines in a really weird way. They just say metacognition, which is also known as learning to learn, which is weird because it, it isn't. I can see that the, the, the ideas are linked, but I don't know anybody who's ever said that apart from the EF. So, um, and then the third one is motivation. And it's interesting that motivation is in the mix because like clearly you have to be motivated like the, the idea of self-regulation like that that implies a sort of a thermostat type you know dial the, like the, the ability to regulate yourself in, implies that there's some sort of choice or freedom or agency here and that you have to be motivated to 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 regulate your learning in order to do so and so you can see the rationale for why motivation was was in there and I understand, and I, again, I don't expect you to have the answers to this all at your fingertips because it's a, it's a while since you wrote this paper. But I understand that you took that definition from a previous paper that was written. I, I seem to remember that it was about science education. Yeah, yeah, that's that's as far as I remember indeed. It, I think we had a, a to and fro about where does it come from? And I think I, I sent the, the, a particular paper that used this particular model, yeah. Yeah. And then they, as I recall, they had cited, they cited some previous paper where they got it from. And then if you drill back and back, it's actually not based on anything like the, the trail goes cold as it so often does. I saw a really good talk that you gave at research ed a while ago about what happens when you, when you like, if you, if you check your citations, people often say, Oh, like metacognition improves memory. And then they put this name in brackets and, and a year. And it's as though, as though that's been proven, but then you go and look at that paper and often, it doesn't necessarily make that point. And so the way that people use citations, if you if you follow them up, you you learn a lot, but you also learn that people are really bad at citing information often. Um so anyway, and so so the, the yeah, the trail went cold. And so I had a few issues with the EEF. One being that they they use the words the, the self-regulation and self-regulated learning interchangeably, as though that's the same thing. And I don't think that those things are the same thing. And I think that it's actually really useful to understand the difference between those two things, between self-regulation and self-regulated learning. The second sort of problem that I have with it is that it's 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 a very cognitive model. It, it focuses on cognition and metacognition and all of this frontal lobe activity, if you like. But as you mentioned earlier, we are embodied creatures the nervous system does not stop at the frontal lobes and nor does it stop at the neck. You know, we're embodied creatures. And so self-regulation, that stuff that I mentioned earlier about monitoring and controlling our feelings, physical feelings and our behaviors, how we interact with the external environment, that stuff is super important. Um, and and the third problem that I had with it is just that like, that, that that isn't, although although it was cited, as you say, on this previous paper, that's not my reading, and I recently did a PhD in this, that's not my reading of, of how those terms are generally understood in the literature. And it felt like a bit of a distortion. And I, and I, and I spoke with the, with the EEF authors around the time, and, and uh, one of them, I think it was Ellie Stringer, 
um, who said that that they were aware of that, that they sort of that they were aware that that this model that they've come up with, cognition, metacognition, motivation, is in some sense an oversimplification, where they were trying to distill down this very sort of unclear, conflicting field of of research into something that is easy for teachers to understand, right? And I, and I and I understand the need for that. It's just that I think that it's unhelpful because it it overlooks the like, it, it misconceives what metacognition is in theory and in practice. It doesn't make a distinction for self-regulation, and it overlooks the importance of of emotions in learning. Um, and it's just that's not how these words are understood. So they would they would be my concerns with it. Yeah, I think you you make some good points there. Um... Let, let me start with the, the final thing, because it's this sort of simplification or oversimplification that this, I think, is a is a a common theme, to be honest. I, I, I would probably be the first as a researcher to, you know, the the basic memory model that Willingham proposes. And I would be standing by the sidelines first and saying this is an oversimplification and that the answer would always be. Yeah, but in communicating complex ideas, you sometimes need to make uh, simple models. I think uh, just to quote Dylan William again, I think he likes to quote Box, right? George Box, that uh, all, I think, along the lines of that all models are flawed, uh, but some models are useful. Yeah. And I understand that. Uh, I also understand how uh, models uh, could sometimes uh, mislead to some extent. So I think if I recall our discussion at one point, I think uh, I sort of answered along the lines that under motivation perhaps would better have been worded something along the line like affect or emotion, sort of a broader... Uh, so so I, I mentioned, for example, just now... I talked about motivation, but I immediately also talked, and you talked about confidence. Some people might translate it as something like self-concept, which is a concept which has many other features. So I can see your point about motivation as a solitary uh, term, let's say, not covering all the bases. Uh, but I go I go back really to what, how we started in the beginning. I think because a language will always be imperfect in that sense, the only way to really make sense of these things is what we are doing now or what we did actually in this conversation. We were emailing back and throw, et cetera, to and throw. We were emailing about this. I explained where it came from and how we came to that, uh, to that path. You, you explain your position and think that it doesn't really do justice. And, and actually the act of us talking about it uh, uh, provides for both of us at least the clarity but then translating this to other people and so that they may also uh, understand our way both our ways of thinking that then becomes the big challenge of course and we're sort of trying to do that here by talking about it uh, but in the end you know it is a picture I think in your impact article as well in the end, it is a diagram that people are going to see and they're going to interpret in their own way. Mm. And uh, the language associated to it will always be flawed to some extent. So 
you know, I'm sort of putting Orsi, uh, I guess, on a pedestal, uh, but but Orsi between uh, the two of us or with the community, right? We need to talk about these things. So I think you make good points. We made different choices in this uh, in this review. I cannot speak for the guidance report uh, authors. You would have to ask them, but I can only say that uh, the model was from this particular article. That was one that spoke to us as a uh, you know a simplification of the world. But I can completely see the way you are reasoning about it. How that also brings important elements to the table. Uh, not in the least the one that is about emotions and affect and how we are influenced by that. Mm. But to some extent, I feel that it's a bit, I don't want to sound too pompous, of course, but a bit like, you know, Wittgenstein's uh, language games type stuff. Uh, um, and the only way to really get clarity is to have discussions like we are having now about yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I completely agree. Dialogue is is the way that these things like come to light. But then, how do you how do you translate that like to other people? So, so just just to round this off, if I may, just like just to recap that diagram that you mentioned, we sometimes refer to it as the frog model because it sort of just accidentally looks a bit like a frog. And so, for the benefit of listeners, I'll put a, I'll put a slide that you can link to in the show notes if you want to see this visually. But I'll try to describe it using words. So you, it's using the three, the, the three terms that I mentioned earlier, metacognition, self-regulation, and then self-regulated learning more widely. So metacognition, we could think of as like the left eye of the frog. It's this big blob. If you picture this in the upper left of your field. And this is monitoring and controlling your thought processes. What's going on in the old noggin? The other eye on the other side of, the, of this image is self-regulation monitoring and controlling your feelings and behaviors and if you think about it both of those are huge categories right like monitoring and controlling your thought processes you could be thinking about the fact that, as you probably are christian that you're going to go and see suede later this evening and you're just like looking, looking forward to that yeah there you go absolutely um, yeah, yeah yeah or you could think about the fact that your you know your kitchen needs tidying or your hoover's broken or whatever the millions of things that you can think about right likewise self-regulation monitoring controlling your feelings and behaviors it could be like oh i feel like i've got a bit of a crick in my back like i've been leaning over i've been sitting weirdly or i feel frustrated at the moment right there's so many things about your behavior that you could reflect on or do differently right they are both vast categories and they don't only apply to learning they could apply to loads and loads of aspects of our lives and that's why the distinction between self-regulation and self-regulated learning is so useful and here we come here we come to the sort of to the the bottom of our frog diagram if you like which is like this huge like like um oval that, that that is at the bottom of this image which overlaps with these two circles at the top and that hopefully you can now see a little froggy image appearing in your mind two big eyes and a big wide mouth at the bottom and this is self-regulated learning and this is the application of metacognition and self-regulation <laughs> to learning because there are there are aspects of these two very powerful processes that do apply to your learning. If you're thinking about how to write an essay and you notice that you're getting really stuck in your thinking, that's, that's not monitoring and controlling your thought processes with regard to essay writing. And that's an aspect of self-regulated learning. Likewise, if it's about managing distractions or whatever it might be, or about your feelings, or if you're, if you're catastrophizing about 
you know, um, certain, you know, aspects of your learning that you can realign those and you can control those and change that part of your life. That's, you know, an aspect of self-regulated learning that lends itself um, to self-regulation. And at this point, you might say, ah, but the EEF had motivation in their model. So like, where's motivation gone? And I agree, motivation is important. And then we've identified, I've, I've rec- I'm about to release, there's this, um, we've, we've created this card-based resource, a professional development resource uh, called Activate, which will be coming out soon, um, which is, it's been about three years in the making. It absolutely killed me. But it was really, it's really helpful. I never had to think so hard as, as I have when I was making this. Um, resource thanks to my amazing co-authors who just wouldn't leave any stone unturned and we identified these sort of five enabling factors that sort of sit around this frog's mouth if you like and motivation is one of them you need to be motivated to be able to regulate your learning in this way self-efficacy we identified as like you know you need to you talked about self-concept earlier self-efficacy which I sort of understand as being like, it's a bit like self, like global self-esteem, but it's like with regard to a particular thing. So like how, 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 how self-efficacious, how, how, to what extent do you feel that you're good or could become good at football or surfing or juggling or whatever public speaking say, but do you feel like you, you either are effective with regard to self-regulated learning or that you could become effective in this domain? Uh, Oracy as you mentioned earlier, and please continue. Like, I'm, I'm very happy to hear people putting oracy on a pedestal. It is, to my mind, it is the number one thing that we should be focusing on in schools more than anything, even more than written literacy and numeracy. Um, agency or autonomy is the, is the next one. I think probably more about agency than autonomy, that the idea of self-regulation, as I mentioned, it requires some sort of a thermostat, you know, um, the, this idea that you know you have to have some degree of choice and so in in practice in the lessons that involved the te- us as teachers taking a big step back and not micromanaging the kids sorry i think my dog's about to bark no he's completely nothing pa- nothing completely I was, the world's worst guard dog he just did a really half-baked growl he's lying upside down with his legs splayed all over the place uh, he's right next to the window as well honestly that's ridiculous anyway so um yeah so so agency that the, the, the kids need to be agentic they need to be able to make choices about about aspects of their learning obviously like the the, the clue to self-regulated learning is self they need to be able to have some sort of control and the fifth one is knowledge to bring this whole conversation back in a circle and that's no, like recognizing the importance of domain knowledge but also recognizing that actually that vision of a knowledge-rich curriculum as only comprising uh, knowledge of subjects is actually quite a knowledge-poor curriculum because it doesn't explicitly focus on the knowledge of self-regulated learning, which I've just set out this scheme, which I think is really important for everybody to understand. But also knowledge of self, you know, like like being like self-aware. Like, like this is essentially like when you when you work in this way, it's much more a process of of self-actualization of becoming more fully yourself or growing into yourself it's it's sort of like it's personal development stuff essentially as as as, as opposed to learning like a preordained curriculum or not as opposed to it's like as well as learning a preordained curriculum so that's the frog model with these five sort of surrounding supporting factors what do you think about that as a as a as, a, as an oversimplified way of understanding 
this complex world of mines and the world. Yeah, I hear it, hear it now. Well, I, I I knew the diagram, but I hear it for the first time. So it's it, I need to improv uh, now. No, but they they sound like sensible ingredients. I can already hear people say, "Well, why are you mentioning knowledge as fifth element? Uh, five elements, one fifth is knowledge not more important than that? That sort of thing." And also, we talked about the definition of knowledge, right? Uh, uh, which was always a bit of a paradox, almost. That on the one hand, knowledge, everything is knowledge, but then if you highlight some forms of knowledge, like a metacognitive knowledge or something like that, then people would say, no, 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 that's not that type of knowledge. We mean, we mean the the, you know, we mean Shakespeare, that sort of stuff, and being able to cite a certain part, which I thought was quite contradictory to some extent. You can't, on the one hand, say everything is knowledge, and then and then try to sort of highlight certain types of knowledge. And this is why I, I highlighted previously that I think we need to make the distinction of different types of knowledge, uh, and they are uh, equally important. Uh, or I, I don't even care whether we say equally; they have to be addressed both need to be addressed of all three or four or five different ways. I think at one point I did uh, with my uh, colleague uh, from Jakarta, Ryan Campbell, who's on Twitter as well. We did yeah. this impact uh, article where we tried to reinstate Bloom to some extent, but then the, revi right. the revised Bloom, because actually, in my opinion, that actually aligns quite nicely with what I think we know from cognitive science, that there are different types of knowledge and we can, you know, we can bicker about the different categories and the precise names and the labels, etc. But it is, it's not that bad actually with, uh, you know, verbs uh, denoting the cognitive processing and then the different types of knowledge, uh, declarative, conceptual, factual, I think, and metacognitive, those four. Uh, I think that 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 would prevent anyone only focusing on one type of knowledge. And what I hear you describe, especially when you describe knowledge, is exactly this more inclusive definition of knowledge that encompasses all these different types. Uh, and all the other elements that you mentioned, I think, uh, make sense as well. I will say that I don't see any uh, anything mutually exclusive with what you describe and, you know, some good one-way uh, instruction from a teacher, for example, right? At, yeah, at certain points. Yeah. That, but but I, I can already hear people say, well, yeah, just the label self-regulation often evokes that type of emotion or reaction. Oh, why are you only highlighting this? Why are you not highlighting the power of a good piece of instruction, expository text? And I don't think you are denying that. But, uh, uh, but I, I, I think it's important to highlight that we need both of those, right? And this sort of brings me back to this, I think, actually quite nice quote from Trico and Sweller that, you know, that the consensual view... Uh, with the suggestion that knowledge imparted during instruction includes a mixture of domain general and domain specific information. Mm. And this is why I constantly keep on highlighting it because I, I find that people gloss over this because um, the paper itself has a, a slightly extreme uh, outlier view, but acknowledges that you know there is a, a consensus view that basically says both. 
some people just get really annoyed when you say both or in the middle or uh, or uh, we need consensus etc right and then yeah. people come with these extreme examples uh, like is it Agrippa I don't know some of those philosophers or would you rather be uh, flayed or would you rather be uh, excommunicated you know two extremely uh, uh, two extremes and then say well which one of these two extremes do you like more I don't I don't think it is based on cognitive science that's not what the science in my opinion says it is actually this balance and if we can just refrain from you know quick conclusions and we can have a, a conversation like we're having now and I've suggested this to the because I can be a little bit troll-like sometimes on Twitter because I, you know, you get these standard reactions and then I, I can be a bit contrarian and say, yeah, but what about this and what about that? And if you then your answer is, well, you are just misunderstanding it and, and implying and I'm not, then, you know, the discussion is over. And this is really such a shame because I yeah. think diving deeper into you know close reading like like we do with our phd students as well journal club type uh, stuff where you have an article and you really dive in every line line by line you go through an article even if you disagree or you think an argument is not so strong even if that is the case the whole process of uh, deep dives although i i, I realize that that is sort of the inspection language as well now but the whole point of these deep dives actually will help your own uh, thinking as well. Uh, and that's why I enjoy still discussing even on social media or doing these types of stuff or being at research ed, doing a talk or an, an education conference and discussing with colleagues, journal clubs. They're all catalysts really for our thinking, mm -hmm. which I, I enjoy. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this, right? right? I'm doing things I enjoy most. So there we are. Yeah, well, that that really comes across. I can see that you, I can see that you enjoy it, and that that enthusiasm is infectious. And and you, I think you make an excellent point. And we'll 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 round up on this because um, it you know it's the middle way essentially. Because like like people often do portray this debate as though it's a binary thing, as though it's an all or nothing thing. And it seems to me, at least, and uh, and I, I know that at least to to many to to some other people that I'm in contact with that. A balance is what's needed that yes you know domain subject knowledge is super important and nobody nobody is suggesting as far, as far as i'm aware that's not quite true maybe some some people outliers on the other side of the of the debate are suggesting that we should do away with with subject domains entirely i think that there's a strong case for it and the learning skills curriculum that we um, implemented at, at the school in, in Sussex and that we're now working with schools internationally to help them develop similar approaches with amazing results, um, it should be said. Um, not so much in this country at the moment because we've had this administration under which you know self-regulated learning just isn't happening, but we're working with schools in Wales, uh, in South Africa, in Holland, elsewhere. Uh, China so um, this stuff is happening elsewhere and it's we, we're not replacing <laughs> subject-based learning with just this like total like self-directed learning program often this figure of 20% comes up there's a, a previous podcast guest Derry Hannum um, talks about this this idea of 20% that we could have 20% of curriculum time dedicated to 
self-regulated learning, self-directed learning projects. And weirdly, that's exactly what we had in the learning skills curriculum. We had 20, we had one, one fifth, five lessons a week out of 25, one fifth of the time was dedicated to this. Personally, I think that there's also a case for a further 20% to be dedicated to interdisciplinary learning, because all of this, this focus on domain knowledge doesn't acknowledge the fact that domains do overlap, don't they? And that in the news, if you want to understand some complicated story about like why are energy prices so high, for example, that's like a really complicated thing that you're not going to learn only in an economics class or in a physics class or in a politics class. Like it's a combination of a whole range of different things. And recently there's a fantastic new university that started in London called the London Interdisciplinary School, LIS, which just looks absolutely fantastic. And it's, and it's premised on this idea that, that, you know, choosing a subject for a degree is not a good way to understand the world or to be particularly helpful in it. You know, that, that actually, you know, we could introduce a little more interdisciplinary thinking into our, into our, um, into our lives, into our thinking, into our schools. That seems to me to be a perfectly sensible way to go that, you know, like the, the pendulum swung hard in the direction of skills then it swung hard in the direction of knowledge. And it feels like now the Hegelian synthesis maybe is like, well, let's just have these two things sitting alongside one another. And, and by the way, you know, when we did that, the, the, their subject knowledge, like the, 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 the primary outcome of that PhD study that I mentioned, those kids did better in their, in their tests in the at GCSE and throughout school in their tests of subject knowledge, even though they had fewer lessons of subject learning compared with the control group because they've had 400 lessons of learning to learn over over three years um and so it's a win-win right like we we get to we get to 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 teach the kids these self-regulated learning skills if they become more effective learners they'll perform better in their in their subject learning anyway what's not to like <laughs> you, yeah yeah i think you make a good case i can, again i can see people talk about the percentages they it, it's interesting that you mentioned 20 percent because i think ryan and i try to find the the evidence base for the 80 percent that is often mentioned in relation to um rosenshine's principles you know there is this whole sentence oh, about yeah 80 percent uh, so um, rate. <laughs> yeah exactly success rate that's the success rate but so i'm always a little bit skeptical of percentages but if i take it more symbolically as you know that there needs to be a mixture, as a, as the quote that now has been read three or four times. I think I think there is an excellent basis for uh, uh, doing that. There are and and again, courses for courses, and also we need to be careful that there is not a silver bullet. We do in my secondary school. I taught we always had um, interdisciplinary projects where we try to get input from different subjects uh, in, a, in a project where you had to, uh, I think these were 12 year olds and you had to design your own uh, magical island, uh, but you had to think about all kinds of things. Some were a little bit artificial perhaps. So for example, for mathematics, uh, it was route planning, uh, a bit like the traveling salesman problem, right? You, you had different cities on the island and you want to visit all of them. How can you do that, et cetera? So it was a little bit artificial, but they it always a lot of fun and and interesting. Oh, you had to think of, uh, about uh, the different uh, the democracy or the the style of country that you wanted it to be. 
not unlike, by the way, uh, things that uh, computer games like Civilization ask for you, right? To think about the, the government, to think about how do you keep the, the population happy? You have to think about infrastructure. You have to think about where do you put your harbors, etc. And I thought they that always was really quite sensible. There still, even if we did interdisciplinary stuff, I I will say that there will always be, uh, let's say, teacher peculiarities, because I recall that uh, uh, physics teachers and mathematics teachers constantly clashed about the importance of units, for example, because the mathematicians didn't really care. But obviously in physics, that was pretty important. And clashes about, oh, we need to do a project where where we address both, etc. And then that was quite hard. Uh, so, you know, uh, teachers and communities of teachers are humans as well. Sometimes perhaps collaborating takes more uh, time than the actual game, uh, perhaps. Um, but but in the core, I think it is really quite useful and important to, again, collaborate, work together, uh, just as long as the pendulum doesn't swing too far. I was quite surprised here that science was so integrated because uh, and that that you then had double science and triple science in GCSE, for example, Yeah. because uh, they were not. Maybe they are now in the Netherlands, but they certainly were not when I did my exams in the Netherlands. And, and when I was teaching, they were separate subjects and there always were discussions about integrating them because there was so much overlap. But I was never really a proponent of that because there are too many differences really to make one big subject called science. And especially if you create a science subject and then you start uh, again uh, compartmentalizing it, <laughs> it seems as if you're sort of on the one hand, you know, you're, you're making one big uh, subject. But then you're focusing again that it seemed a little bit strange. So I'm just saying again that even in this, there is a balance to be struck with domain specific and domain general things. And there isn't really a, a right or a wrong answer. Uh, but I do have opinions sometimes about it. Mm. So what you're saying is that we're never not going to have things to argue about on Twitter. I think that's uh, uh, if we're ever going to state uh, a certain truth, it's probably going to be something along those lines. <laughs> I think there will always be some. When, it's funny when you said, when you corrected yourself and you said, no one is saying this. We see this a lot on uh, Twitter as well, right? Uh, because it's such a global, large community, every statement under the sun, there is always someone who adheres to it or seems to adhere to it. <laughs> Maybe we can think of something completely atrocious uh, 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 that no one will will under, underwrite. But when it comes to something as nebulous as education, I've seen people defend and state almost anything under the sun. And mm. this is why statements that basically say no one is saying that uh, are always incorrect. Yeah. If I if I now use the 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 the, the label always, uh, simply because you will always find and but but that is just so tiring. <laughs> Because you, if you look hard enough in the millions of tweets, you will find a tweet that you will uh, take offense to, uh, and also in the education sphere. And I find it quite ironic that sometimes the ones that are the most sensitive to this 
uh, are sometimes proclaiming, you know, freedom of speech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, maybe you should just not be so sensitive about these one or two people who are saying this. And we certainly should not be basing policy on one or two people who are saying some extreme things, right? We we can we can be commonsensical. We can be moderate and in the middle and reasonable. And we probably are if we are in the pub and we are having a discussion. But for some reason, it doesn't always happen uh, on social media. And we need to be aware of that. That's, a, a, I guess, a metacognitive strategy for us as well. Yeah, right. That's it. I mean, so so I do think that just, as, yeah, like, that. I mean, the culture wars rage eternally, don't they? And for all kinds of reasons that we probably don't have time to go into now. But <clears throat> to come back to this, it does feel like we're in quite an unhappy period of time. There's lots like feelings are running really, really high about almost everything. Like people get outraged at the slightest thing and then spend their days just like spending 16 hours a day, just like tweeting angrily at opponents of your particular view. We've become very entrenched, very divided. And I do think that that metacognition and self-regulation are the, the escape hatch. That's how we get out of this, where we start to notice things more. We start to just pay attention to how we're behaving. And we start to think, you know, is this actually helping? You know, like, have I ever really changed anybody's mind by firing off an angry tweet? Maybe there's another way of doing this. And and maybe that's the way that this, this you know, that that thing about, you know, like how, how groups work, there's like storm, norm, form, reform. Have you heard, have you heard of that model? of like group dynamics group behavior doesn't ring a bell but <laughs> they use it a lot so so a group a group forms and then there's a storm there's this like unholy just like like as people are essentially sort of battling for a place in the in the pecking order if you like to try to understand how they relate to everybody else and then it norms and then it deforms and it reforms later on and so on and it feels like the, the culture wars as they're raging on the internet it feels like we the, the internet has enabled this global storm of ideas and all of these like ideas that lots of people thought that we'd seen the back of like racist ideologies yeah. and sexism and just like stuff that that hasn't really reared its head in quite a few years that actually hadn't gone away it was just sort of underground and now that the internet allows everybody to say everything all the time what was that film called everything everywhere all at once mm. that's the internet isn't it it's everything everywhere all at once and it's this raging whirlwind and and i think that you know, at some point we need to figure out how to how to move past that phase of this just this storm, these entrenched battle of ideas, so that we can come to realize that actually, you know, as a species, I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita recently. It's just you know, it's so simple. Everybody knows fundamentally that we're all one. We're all related to one another. Literally related to one another. We're all descended from pond slime. We're all one family of people. We're all one existence. We're all fragments of this this universe that is trying to communicate with itself. We're all the same here, and we, you know, we all sort of fundamentally want good things. Like all of that, all of that activity. Like we were just talking about the education debate as a microcosm of that. Those people who get really fired up about the trans debate or about about gay rights or about race equality or whatever. People on on all sides of this of this of this stuff. What was that that phrase of, of of Donald Trump's that everyone got really upset about? There are good people on both sides. I'm not I'm not saying that, 
But I think that 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 the people on people on on all sides, like nobody really feels like they're evil, right? Like nobody really feels like they're trying to do something really horrible for other people. They might feel like they 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 want to protect their in group more than their out group, and that might be their sort of moral palette, if you like. You know that they they're more interested in the in group than the out group, or it might be that they're more interested in whatever it might be, right? And you know, helping people to 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 overcome inequality and and what have you and everybody's motivated by what they see as as like some way of trying to make the world a slightly better place but we're just sort of all talking at cross purposes and and i think that until we can have this reflective conversation like you say it comes through 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 constructive dialogue that we can start to move out of this embattled mode and move into something that's a more harmonious way of being, um, and I, and I really think that that this is the mechanism by which that will happen, if it if it will, is through reflection and dialogue, like like you've just been describing. Yeah, I I hope so. Um, I I will say that there is an onus on us in that sense as well. So I, I'm I'm thinking of all the, the the biggest debates. I'm tweeting actually less than I would say five years ago at one point you think well these discussions we've had them 20 times i could just i could just tweet them a, a thread where <laughs> andrew old and i uh, bashed out all the prog versus trad uh, definition stuff uh, without uh, a, a, any conclusion obviously but anyway and then sighing and then well let's not do that so I'm, i think i'm tweeting uh, less to some extent but that's also because I'm self-regulating myself to some extent uh, uh, and um, not saying everything. For some people, that almost is equal to self-censorship, right? Oh, you don't dare say that anymore. But I, I think that's a little bit too simplistic and almost, um, let's say, an underestimation of the, the judgments that humans can make. Sometimes I just think, well, I'd rather go to a suede concert than being angrily tweeting, right? And who wouldn't, right? Everyone would want to uh, prefer that. So I'm just saying that uh, uh, the onus, to a large extent, is on the person themselves. So I, when when you get these people who say, I'm going to leave Twitter now forever because I've been offended completely and I'm going to stop. I never really, with all the respect in the world for what it was about, because before you know it, if you don't say this, then you are a racist or you are, you know, you are part of the, the bad people, really. Mm. But to some extent, you are in control how much you let it influence you. That's, I think, what I mean. So a, a part of the self-regulation is to just shrug your shoulder and say, well, you know, I know I, I'm in this for the right reasons and I'm doing this for this reason, et cetera, et cetera. So if someone disagrees with that and says, well, it must be because you are making loads of money with your book, then, well, yeah, okay, bye-bye, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do, do, did you want, uh, or maybe not bye-bye, maybe say, well, okay, if you think so, but can we now have a real discussion about what metacognition means like we're doing now? You know, that's a different reaction. I just mean we're all in control of these these reactions. Uh, so in a sense, it's all for adults as well. It's all uh, self-regulation. We we regulate ourselves. We we decide how to deal with it. 
uh, and actually just sort of sitting still and, and ponder a little bit and then making a, an informed decision on how you deal with it, I think is much more uh, commonsensical than I, I would say, let's say a base reaction because you are outraged in the moment and you need to, you need to get it out there. There is this, uh, you know, this cartoon, right, where this guy is uh, behind the computer saying, and, and I, it probably the partner is saying, are you coming to bed? And then he's turned around and says, uh, I, I will come in a moment. Someone is wrong on the Internet, which is quite a, a famous XKCD, I think, uh, uh, cartoon. That That is how many of us are behaving to when we get, get into the realm of social media. And I've done that as well. And I probably sometimes I'm still doing it. And then I just sit still. I ponder and think, well, as I just said, shall I now angrily tweet or shall I just uh, have lunch? Uh, and we probably have to sometimes choose lunch over angrily tweeting, I guess. There you go. Metacognition will set you free. It will set us all free. <laughs> So as you know, um, I really like to get to know the guests a little bit um, on this podcast, because I think that that's something that's often missing as well, linking back to what we were just talking about. When you're angrily you know, tweeting with somebody, you often like, haven't really taken the time to really to get to know that person first. Often it's like the first exchange, like some perfect stranger will just pop up on my feed and just say something really offensive. He's just so, it's sort of laughable. You just think like, who are you? And and what do you think you're doing? Like, would you do that to some stranger like, if, it, if it was face to face? And so let's just get to know one another a little bit. And so I'm really interested to hear about you and your history and, and your education, because often you can see people's educational philosophies in their own childhood and their own experience of school. So I'm interested to hear about that and your your childhood growing up in uh, what sounds like a lovely part of, of, uh, of Holland. Um, and your later education. So talk us through that, first mm. of all. Right. Uh, born in Amsterdam, 1975. Yeah, so I'm, I'm getting on. <laughs> uh, as I think I will notice tonight, because I've heard that most people are between 45 and 65 <laughs> at the Suede concert. But anyway, um, when I was three, moved to a place called Enkhuizen, or my parents moved. Uh, so I didn't really consciously uh, experience Amsterdam, to be honest. I would return to Amsterdam later on in life. Um, the quaint little fishing town called uh, Enkhuizen, uh, which is uh, an hour north of Amsterdam, uh, used to be um, in the 17th century, uh, the Netherlands had, was quite a seafaring country. I think there even were battles with uh, the with England at the time, uh, the, because they were ruling the seas as well in some other countries. Uh, lots of spice trade with Japan, Indonesia uh, was one of the colonies at the time, and that's not a very positive footnote in history, to be honest. We did similarly bad things as the English did across the world. Yeah, I can say that, right? <laughs> there yeah, we go. yes. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a fact, to be honest. Um, but anyway, um, so this is a this was a, one of the largest ports in the Netherlands at the time. So really one of the biggest cities, well, city towns, really. Now I think there are 18,000 people. Uh, so it's a, quite an old uh, town with lots of warehouses from the time when uh, ships were leaving for the East Indies, basically. So I uh, so we moved there, 
outside of the old city that my parents started to live and I, I basically I went to the school that was 20 meters from my home that was the primary school and then went to the secondary school in the same town which there was one school that was slightly further afield but I, I couldn't really be bothered to be honest at the time I just wanted to be able to walk to my school I think a happy childhood I think uh, yeah really uh, good um, memories of all of that uh, as I said quite a small town a uh, couple of friends etc and then when I was 17 so I was an early student I was born in September so I was a young student uh, in the year I think the rules are slightly different here in England uh, I went and started study in uh, the east of the Netherlands at a technical university did that for one year didn't like it at all missed the west side the west is the more populous area with the larger cities so I moved back uh, and although there are some other sort of uh, smaller details uh, going from A to B, but let, let's just summarize it that I, I moved to uh, Amsterdam and uh, studied there. Um, mathematics and then uh, went and specialized in mathematics education. Uh, and that uh, I think when I was 22, 23, I finished that uh, and became a mathematics teacher. So quite young, 23, I started being a mathematics teacher at a secondary school just north of uh, Amsterdam, the Sandam. So I think you were going to the Netherlands. And th so there is this part with the, the windmills, the Sandse Schans, which is quite uh, uh, popular, uh, which is uh, windmills, let's say the old windmills that we used to drain the, the lowlands because of course most of the Netherlands or certainly the top half of the Netherlands is underwater really but we we made sure that there were quite strong dikes from early on something that England also could have learned from to be honest when it comes to water defenses um, and I stayed there and taught there for 14 years basically uh, so I uh, actually the University of Southampton is my second employer at my first. So I've only had two employers, really. Wow, apart, right. Apart from, uh, you know, these student type jobs and, and, and other small things. But they were two constants, really, in, uh, in my life. From early on, uh, uh, when I started teaching, the school was quite well known for doing projects in mathematics education, especially one uh, colleague. Uh, if he's listening, hi Gerard, there we are, uh, who's also still active on social media, introduced me to a couple of projects that involved uh, Utrecht University uh, and the use of technology in mathematics education. Um, so I did that from the beginning and uh, kept on doing that, taught computer science in the same school uh, as well. At one point was head ICT. Uh, as well, which was part-time. So I kept on teaching mathematics as, uh, as well from 12 to 18-year-olds, basically across the whole spe age spectrum. But at one point, I just wanted to dive deeper into, uh, you know, techno using technology with mathematics. Does it really work? And there wasn't really, as a teacher, it was there wasn't really much time. We, we did projects, but there wasn't really much time to dive deeper into the, the research behind it. Does it really work? You know, the what works type uh, uh, approach. Uh, and I got an opportunity to actually be seconded to the university and do a part-time PhD. 
uh, that was in uh, 2007. Uh, and um, well, I started doing a part-time PhD uh, on the use of technology to learn algebra. And this is what I did, uh, finished it in four years part-time in 2011. Uh, and then uh, because this was a special program where you were seconded, which was necessary because at the time I already had a family. So uh, I have five children. Uh, the last one was born in 2008. So in 2000, 2002, 2004, 2006 and 2008, um, uh, our children uh, were born. Um, it's really hard to do a PhD at the same time from a financial perspective because you know, we can't just stop working, we need the income. So the fact that the program allowed to be seconded meant that I was still employed by the school. I was still teaching, doing some teaching, but part of it was devoted to do, doing the PhD. So I'm quite privileged in that sense that I could do that because it wasn't really a, a given, uh, certainly not as I was, I think 32, 33, and I was already uh, you know, full in my teaching career so that that was a bit of luck uh, and also keeping your eyes open for these opportunities to be honest uh, but what they hadn't done in the program is think what do we do with so this program allowed teachers to become to do research do a phd and the idea was that schools could then become more research informed institutions with people walking around who knew about doing research etc cetera, etc cetera. but what they hadn't thought about is okay so this program what after people finish the program? Um, and there basically were two options, full-time teaching again, which I did enjoy, was quite tiring, as we know, it's, in the, in, it's a tough job, but with no opportunity to do anything really with your research <laughs> or uh, do something that is more research oriented. In the Netherlands, this was not possible at all for all kinds of reasons in the, the way higher education uh, is organized. So uh, I felt that the only way to really do anything with um, both mathematics education and research was to move. So we decided uh, as a family to move to, um, to uh, England. There was a vacancy at the University of Southampton and I applied and I got that job in 2012. We moved there and I'm still here. So, uh, as I said, my second employer and I'm mainly focusing. I'm now a, a full professor in mathematics education, but I. I'm quite open minded to different things. I still my the largest part of my heart is probably in associated with mathematics education, whether it's about, I don't know, uh, how mathematics uh, is taught in uh, East Asia, uh, PISA and TIMS, uh, so large scale international comparisons, technology use, etc. Uh, and also a lot of methodology uh, and, I, and you especially when I do comments on research on social media, for example, a lot of it revolves around, uh, I think, a lot of expertise I've built up in research methods. Um, and lately, some other projects with uh, good colleagues like John Jerram and Sam Sims uh, on Ofsted inspections, etc. So I am, I am, I've always been quite omnivorous in the sense that I like a lot of different things. Uh, and this job allows me to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still very happy here. Mm. I guess that's it. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. That's fascinating. I was going to ask about how you ended up in Southampton. That's really interesting. Um, and so, and you're not too far away, just down the coast. Um, I'm from Brighton, maybe a little way, a couple of hours. Um, and and the other question that I'm interested in to ask people often is about significant learning. So you've sort of given a very perfectly comprehensive sort of account of maybe not comprehensive, but a very well well told story of, of your educational and career history. I'm also interested in in the big ideas that have sort of shaped either your thinking, and it could be your thinking about maths education or about education more widely, or it could be just, you know, more generally about philosophical stuff, about life decisions. So like the, the, these are the moments that shape us as people. Mm-hmm. Like what are the, what are the, what have been the moments or the, the instances of significant learning that have really shaped you? Is there anything that stands out as you look back over this, this journey that you've been on from this, well, going all the way back to, to Amsterdam, although that was probably a bit too young to, to, a bit too young to have any significant moments of learning at the age of three. Um, well, a couple of things come to mind. So I, I mentioned that I returned to Amsterdam to, to, to study. I think always, I think that was a big uh, moment again. I love Amsterdam, obviously, and everyone should love Amsterdam, in my opinion. I, th- I still think it's the people from Rotterdam and The Hague and Utrecht will be, and they are nice cities as well, but Amsterdam is the place to be. Uh, I lived there uh, next to one of those canals old canals in the center, which was, it was a very crummy, uh, very poor room. Uh, the reason why I mention this is that I think that that time was the time where I developed this interest in, uh, in teaching mathematics, but also uh, an interest in always doing something next to it. So I've never read, so what, I think one significant thing for me is that I realized that I, I, and I, I've, tried to change even recently but that I could never really focus on just one thing I always need something next to it to infuse me to to uh, broaden my horizon and I remember even even when I was teaching uh, full-time I did I did these projects that I talked about but even uh, uh, outside of um, uh, the my, my let's say teaching career I kept on doing a student job I had done, let's say, years before on a Saturday. So I would still then go into Amsterdam. I worked as a the Britpop uh, connoisseur in the Virgin Megastore in uh, in Amsterdam. So there is a, and the reason why I mentioned this is that I think I've kept on doing that, keeping something on the side that sort of uh, I. These three things, right? You have your core job, which I think now is great. And I love teaching at the time as well. You've got your core job, but but I get bored easily. So I need something within the job to deepen my understanding, uh, my enjoyment, my knowledge about the job, which would be the projects and the PhD that I did. And now it might be something like, uh, diving deeper into a certain methodology that I don't really know much about and diving deeper into that. But then next to those two things, which are still associated with just my job, there needs to be something outside of it as well. I think that's really important for my mental health. And I, I would argue for anyone's mental health, really. Mm. That has nothing to do with that, really. It could be music. I know you know a couple of people who are musicians or something like that. And for me, it's always been music, 
I have been in some bands, but to be honest, I was a little bit too controlling to really, uh, as a singer, uh, because I wanted people to tell people what to play, and that never works, <laughs> unless <laughs> unless they um, uh, they are open to that, and they never were, which is fine, you know. I I, I it's not as if I've got a hiccup with that. Uh, but but something so, so the music for me was the Saturday student job and I continued doing that even though I was full time teaching being the Britpop expert people came to me with questions about suede about Oasis Blur and I was the one in Amsterdam one of the people there were a couple more you would go to to ask oh there is this obscure English band uh, with 12 reasons why I love her who is that and I said my life story and then I would go uh, to the <laughs> Uh, or uh, the Divine Comedy, or Marion, or Jean, or all these small Britpop <laughs> bands at the time. So that that, but I I I I give it as an example of uh, all a significant learning moment for me was realizing that that's just the nature of the beast. If if I call myself a beast in this case, I that's just how I am, and I shouldn't be, change that because I will be really unhappy if I don't have something on the side like that uh, mm. so that was really important for me just for my sanity before that i was maybe worrying a little bit too much about what other people would think about that because you know why not focus 100 percent just on the teaching i and i i sometimes still think oh i'm jealous of those people who can be so focused but it's just not me the same thing now with my research I just need to accept it that I'm all over the place when it comes to my interests yeah. and I will be really unhappy if I just focus on one thing and other people horses for courses right they can do that that's fine let me just do this and I think my strengths are there but it took some time for me to accept this because to some extent uh you know focusing also is a is is quite a good skill but it's just uh, I find it really hard so Getting to terms with my own character, I guess, is is one of the significant learning moments. Yeah, thank you. I really I love that example. Um, and yeah, it almost seems to seems to speak back to what we were talking about earlier. Without wanting to open that whole thing again, but you know, we have like specialist people who are super focused, and we have generalist people who have like a wide range of of interests. And we need both types of people in this world of ours, don't we? Thank you for that. So, so, so you said that there was a couple of things that that sprang to mind with regards to significant learning. Um, well, something that has shaped me more in the mathematics education realm, and I'm I don't know if I need to. I'm happy. No, I'm not happy to say. I'm actually a little bit sad to say that it is again becoming an issue on social media. Actually, in this particular week, even is that I've, I've been shaped quite a lot when it comes to mathematics education by uh, something called the math wars. You might have seen the term uh, reappear actually this yeah, week it's again. It's raging at the moment. It's it's And I was, I'm a bit sad about that because I, uh, again, talking about revisiting what we talked about, this balance, and I don't mean a false balance, right? I don't mean, a, I, I genuinely mean that this whole uh, you know, conflict between what is important, procedures, procedural knowledge or uh, conceptual knowledge. I think the answer is simple. It, it is both, it's 
important and uh, sometimes it begins with one and it ends up in you know sometimes you know the you teach the concepts and then it leads to better uh, use of the procedures and sometimes you you know there are mathematical topics where i really had to practice a lot to really understand them uh, so it you know depends on the topics the context and i'm always a little bit i've always been saddened by the fact throughout my teaching career, mathematics teaching career, and my PhD, and now again, because it's becoming uh, popular again, by uh, this, these types of conflicts, because I think they are completely phony. Uh, phony in the sense, not that I'm trying to downplay the important points that are being made, but that I think everyone will agree, well, almost everyone, that both are really important. So, you know, and I recognize some similar mechanisms as we saw with generic versus domain specific, that when someone mentions procedures, there's always someone who will stand up and say, what about the conceptual knowledge? And when you only mention conceptual knowledge, there's always someone who stands up and says, what about the procedures? And they both have a point, but we can shortcut everything by just saying, well, they're both really important. And depending on the context, sometimes you start with one and or the other, and they uh, and they um, let's say they develop iteratively. And it sounds a little bit maybe specialist to mention this, but I I cannot remember a moment that it never was an issue. There always were people taking offense about one or the other, and it is quite a coincidence that actually this week it is completely has blown up again. Uh, with tribes and different sides. And I'm, you know, uh, there are lots of discussions with, about Joe Bowler, for example, which is a famous ma mathematics education name. And I'm quite critical about some aspects of that. Uh, and then there are people who very reason give very reasonable critiques of that. Uh, and there are some who are, who are not very reasonable and they are all bunched together in this one big pot of people who disagree with me. Right. And the other way around as well. So, and I just despair uh, that that. Uh, and we, I think you recognize a lot of of that in in generic versus domain specific knowledge, skills, all of these binaries. I remember that, and in the end, I didn't dare do it, which perhaps I should have done. So there is a tradition in the Netherlands when you finish your PhD, it's a public defense, and you also release ten. 10 statements and the statements, uh, these 10 statements, let's say the first five or six should be about your findings from your PhD, which all makes sense. And then the last four, three or four are more tongue in cheek type statements about things that are associated with your topic, but are a bit more political, a bit of tongue in cheek. That That's just a tradition steeped in centuries of uh, public defense uh, of PhDs in the Netherlands. The, I, I won't explain the, the system, but it's, let's say, rooted in tradition to do that. And at one point I joked that basically my four statements should be the following. One, conceptual knowledge is really important. Statement two, procedural knowledge is really important. Statement three, if you disagreed with me mentioning conceptual knowledge first and uh, procedural knowledge second, switch them around. And then statement four, 
And now stop bickering and let's continue with doing uh, the things that really matter. Just because I was so annoyed by the enormous amount of energy that was leaking away in all these, I would, and this is why I call it pony, although I know there are things at stake and it's about curriculums and it's about power and all these things, but it was just almost a cry for, for goodness sake, can't we just invest all this energy in fleshing out when, for example, would be a better moment to maybe focus a bit more on procedures, when on conceptual, uh, and, and, and then come to the conclusion that both are really important, uh, which to me seemed very commonsensical. But mm. every time these discussions, you know, come to the fore and people redo the discussions, and I, it really, I really despair uh in, in in that sense and i uh and, and some people would even take offense in me bringing this up because uh i i dare to almost play and i'm not but placing myself above the the people uh you know uh, uh discussing all these important things but that's not it it's just a waste of time really to lose all that energy that could be used for so much and I think many teachers actually at the classroom level most teachers the majority also just shrug their shoulders and they just go back and do some good teaching rather than really uh, uh, concern them if you ask them perhaps but they so, so anyway that, that, so that's I guess the significant learning moment is are all these occasions in my whole career from my first year of teaching to now about losing energy and not wanting to lose energy for this, you know, binary discussions that I think don't have really have any uh, evidence base, really, because the evidence base, in my opinion, also says that both are important and they work iteratively together. You need both of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, and, and and of course, the maths wars um, could be seen alongside the reading wars, which, you know, have similarly raged for years, and the prog trad wars, right, and, and the Brexit wars, and the, the you know, the, the whole, that, that's not just a recent thing, the, 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 you know, the European argument has been raging in this country for decades and it seems to say something to me it's like it, 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 this stuff isn't really that much about maths or about reading or about you know membership of the european union it's about human nature it seems that there's just something in our nature you know you just mentioned binary debates and often these things are binary aren't they like we we had to vote in a referendum should we be in europe or out of europe nobody talks about the customs union or the single market or northern ireland or any of the immense complications with that decision it was just like you know what you think gun to your head go like that's not a binary thing and likewise you know there is no binary like if you only taught conceptual knowledge and didn't teach any procedural stuff or vice versa you just have a half-baked mathematics education that wouldn't work, it wouldn't be as rounded or as, or as complex. And likewise, if you only used traditionalist, you know, like in explicit instruction and you never did anything about, you know, developing the children's, you know, emo social and emotional learning or whatever it might be, you know, like obviously the answer is always both. <laughs> it's, it's always yeah. both. But there's something about human nature, it seems, that we just... I don't know that people really struggle with complexity. You used the word nuance before. Um, 
And I've, I've seen the word nuance become weaponized in the debate where they're like, oh, you're just going to argue for nuance like because you don't have an argument or you don't have any evidence. And it's like, well, no, actually, this is nuance. Like, like there, there are, there, the world is complicated. We're talking here about, about social reality, you know, like we're talking like education, like you're not talking about pure math. It's, the math wars is not an education about like mathematical, like sort of ideas. It's about mathematical instruction, isn't it? And that's about people and people are really different and diverse and have different values and beliefs and have had different life experiences. And so we need to have <laughs> and, and like systems in place that, that allow us to, to be flexible, to accommodate that, right? And to cater to different people's needs and tastes while, while bearing in mind the importance of, of opposing ideas and the importance indeed of clashes of ideas sometimes because when the sparks fly, that's where we start to see, you know, to gain deeper understandings and so on. But it seems to me that this, this, this problem that you're describing is just like not really about the math wars. It's just like there's something fundamental about human beings that we just sort of seem to really like locking horns and going at it you know that that sort of soldier mindset is like you have you seen the scout mindset uh, there's a really good book recently called scout mindset which is about like you know trying to occupy the high ground and to understand the lay of the land and to understand the situation from from all angles rather than just like be in the trenches like slugging it out and it feels like there's 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 something about human beings at the heart of this it's not just about math is it there is there is an interesting thing I think I I do understand that you know often things do end up in binary decision making either you go to the cinema or you don't either you put something in a curriculum or you don't but what I find really remarkable is that uh, so in that sense I I I do understand that sometimes the endpoint needs to be a decision mm-hmm. however that doesn't mean that the road towards that decision, because humans are quite probabilistic uh, in, in that sense anyway, right? Uh, that, uh, that that has to be binary as well, that there are only two positions. And often we, it's sort of a, a, a balance of arguments almost all the time, right? And, and sometimes being convinced with a certain set of arguments without the counter arguments necessarily being untrue. Uh, and but we often don't even get there this sort of balancing of the different arguments and this is why i do like this steel personing for example because it 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 forces you it is quite hard but it forces you to at least step into the mind of someone else and formulate what the best argument against your own view would be um and and that's i think that is really necessary to get to the best decision making at one point Mm. Uh, and also, I think it sort of touches towards, you know, di- dialectics, etc. To sort of, you know, we spar together, we, we we share arguments, and in the end, sure, if a decision is made, I might disagree with that decision and the, on the balance of arguments. But at least there has been a good sharing of arguments, rather than this, you know, closing the door immediately from your own trench, etc. Uh, and that's what. And the second thing that I'm thinking of, and previously I thought about that as well, when you, uh, what, what often happens in discussions is also to point towards a later education phase. So when you're talking about self-regulated learning, for example, then people say, yeah, primary school, they're just too young. The secondary school has to cater for that. At secondary school, 
they say, well, they're just too young. They're post-16 schools. That's the place to do this. Post-16 points towards university. I, I can say, and anecdotally based on the uh, lectures I'm giving in the last 10 years, that I think students have become less uh, autonomous uh, or, or less uh, self-regulating. Not all of them. So again, I don't want to offend uh, any students who think, well, I can do that. But there is, in my opinion, a bit more hand-holding. And in my opinion, the the best road to self-regulation is not to keep on holding the hands forever and ever and ever. And if we constantly point at a later education phase that they should, yeah, they should be the ones doing all these soft skills, etc. I think it's a bit of a cop out, right? And there is a there is a a reasonable middle to be found, which I do think should be related to some extent to age, because there you do develop more and more as a human being and identity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at every education stage. There is a uh, uh, the, the, there is a place for this mixture uh, of 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 uh, you know instruction and soft skills or whatever you want to call it, um, and this mixture might be slightly different at different ages, but not nothing. That that seems completely because how will students and I think you sort of said that as well. How will students ever learn anything if everyone just passes the buck to a later education phase? Which I I, and this is this has happened for example when um, uh, when people are talking about expertise reversal for example, uh, and then say yeah but experts only really when you get to your PhD studies that you are really an expert well you're sort of that's an easy way out right because if you say that that children are novices basically throughout secondary school, you can just keep on treating them uh, in in the way that. that that you see fit, which often uh, equals in the pro threat discussion, instruction. When actually, you know, you you can be expert, an expert reader when you're 12. Certainly, compared to other students in the classroom, surely there is something more that you can do than just say, "Well, just still sit down and listen to what I have to say." Yeah. Of course, some people are now immediately revolting and saying, "Well, instruction is not just." one-way street it's this highly interactive etc which is again all fine but I, I hope they understand the point uh, that we shouldn't be passing the buck to later ages um, yeah anyway that's something that I, I had to think of when we were talking about um, that every education phase does need some attention I do accept that Perhaps in at certain ages there is there needs to be more emphasis than in other ages, but we need to discuss these things rather than dismiss out of hand. Mm, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that I would love to pick up on there, but I've got an eye on the clock, and we we're going to wrap this up quite soon. Um, thank you so much for that. So so we'll do this as a quick fire round. Three questions remaining: positives, challenges, and solutions. And actually, I'll make that singular positive something that's really good that you see and you might apply this to the maths war you might even apply it to the fact that the maths war exists there might be some positive thing in there or it might be about education more widely what's the major challenge that you see at the moment and that could be about what we've talked about or it could become something completely different you could be thinking about something else is a major challenge that we face educationally at the moment and you know this could be in this country it could be a global perspective and the third one is how might we fix that challenge? 
So positives first. Um, I personally think it's positive that it does seem as if in the last 10 years, teachers have been engaging more with the research. I would say that perhaps as a researcher at a university, but I think it's really positive. You know, I'm doing this monthly column in the test magazine. I don't know if people appreciate it, but the more dialogue seems to be there. I sometimes find perhaps the choices of research a little bit one-sided uh, in all kinds of contexts, but together with social media, even though I've been complaining about the binary nature of it, uh, a situation where we're not doing that at all, I, I think that that is a, a positive. However, it needs to be channeled in the right direction, really. And right, I, it, I don't mean with right, I don't mean my right direction, but just a more constructive, uh, you know, marketplace or forum where we discuss these different things as we've been discussing now in this conversation. And also is sometimes happening on social media as well or other outlets or conferences, et cetera, et cetera. It should be, but I think on the whole, I think this whole, yeah, I, I do not dare say evidence-informed teaching because that immediately comes with a, a whole label of interpretation. But on the whole, I think this engagement with the research is, is, is quite positive, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. A few people have said that on the podcast before, I think, when I've asked that question, that the research engagement, that the, the fact that the internet has enabled a lot more of a free free exchange of ideas and views and best practices and what have you. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, challenges. Yeah. Ch challenge. Challenge. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to smuggle into really, I already said one, which is channeling all this energy and, and, and let's say enthusiasm about evidence in the, in the, in a right or more constructive way, which I do think sometimes is lacking. Um, but, but I, I think the biggest worry for me, so when I started working here, I, I was able to be more involved in teacher training or teacher ITE, uh, initial teacher education. Uh, so that was 2012. Um, and I still do that, actually, but it's becoming harder and harder because the whole landscape since then has changed. And I, I think uh, with all the respect for some uh, very good people working in that area, I think on the whole, it was far too much, uh, let's say, initiated simply to... Um, displace the influence of universities on initial teacher education so they just were too influential i think and i think they you know the, all the discussions about the blob at the time etc that they were motivated by that that doesn't mean that i think that everything is all uh, very bad but if you simply look at the landscape uh, the popularity of uh, teaching the 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 number of every 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 year the numbers go down uh, it also has to do with the profession, teaching as a profession as a whole. I'm not discounting that at all, a mental health uh, workload, all these things. But certainly all the malarkey that has been done to the initial teacher education landscape has absolutely not helped. Actually, it has made things worse, in my opinion. And I, I, I don't understand why, apart from an ideological point of view, 
Um, you say you don't understand why it's happened or you don't understand why it's made things worse? Well, I sort of said why. I, I'm sort of saying that it was for ideological uh, reasons, but uh, I, I, I had expected people to realize much quicker than uh, to realize that it's not in a good place. There have been shortages for ages. Yeah. And there have been discussions about skills uh, and knowledge of uh, from teacher training and then it went more uh, school based with skits etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think uh, having a focus it, it never was the case that uh, initial teacher education in universities didn't work with schools the the most of them had strong partnerships in the region and worked with schools already but okay we can argue whether that needed to be stronger and it did in a whole system but what whatever uh, system you choose, a system where uh, you treat, in my opinion, teacher educators in the way that England has treated their ed teacher educators is just really bad. Mm. I, I, uh, and also, I would say, in conflict with uh, all the rhetoric about uh, dialogue and and list consultations and listening uh, to to the field etc etc and that i just think it's really sad to be honest because i think if again taking the analogy of going to the pub and then fleshing things out um i i for example went to the pub with someone who is now very high I think it was eight years ago, a very high special advisor in the in the DFE. I'm not going to say give any more details, but that was a wonderful conversation where we disagreed about things. But we had really, uh, he, he, I think uh, he or she knew where I was coming from in my views and I understood where they were coming from in their views, etc. Sharing that sort of dialogue is really what we need. And I think it has not taken place or it has taken place and I've just missed a lot of it. But some of the actions that have been taken with the market review, that sort of stuff, I just don't, it gives me the impression of, you know, old free market thinking uh, as, uh, stuff that has happened with the railways, et cetera, et cetera. And surely we have, we have come to the conclusion now that as a big, you know, big societal project, uh, many aspects of that have failed completely. Again, I know I'm being quite, uh, you know, uh, uh, subjective about this, but I, I was just amazed about this. And it has, I'm especially amazed that it hasn't really improved since I came here, because I came around the time, I think that all this rhetoric was taking place, 2012, and it's still the case. Uh, in my opinion, that there, and you know, and as you probably know, the market review has just taken place. Some people uh, have not been accredited. Um, and just the way that you, they deal with it. And at the same time, we have all these shortages and not enough people interested in becoming a teacher. Well, are we surprised, right? Uh, we shouldn't be surprised if we, if we treat teachers, if we treat teacher educators, if we treat them like this, it's not gonna. It's not the best picture to the outside world, anyway. So that's. I think the biggest challenge is exactly this whole area of new teachers, teacher welfare, beginning teachers welfare, etc. Yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely, yeah. This is something that I've been wrestling with myself recently, and so I'm. Re I'm really looking forward to my next question, which is <laughs> how how do we fix that? Because it's oh. a 
it's a really <laughs> hard thing to fix. It's like if you just look at teacher recruitment and retention, for example, you know, we sort of came up with this strap line of like make teaching desirable again. <laughs> you know, because yeah, like, there, yeah. there, there's there's just there are so many there's so many layers to that. Like, why is it that you know, like like is the is the market review the reason that that there's so few people applying to become teachers? Probably not. No. What no. is it? What is the reason that 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 you know that that the numbers are so down on, on previous years? And like you say, and the numbers for this year look even worse than last year, and that's saying something. Um, and it's a really really serious problem, and it's one of the reasons that that you know teachers are so stressed out because they're really stretched. They're often having to teach outside of their subject area because you know they, there's not enough teachers of geography or whatever it might be. Um, it's a very, very difficult problem. And likewise, the retention side of that, you know, how could there's lots and lots of ex-teachers um, in this country and lots of people leaving the profession, lots of school leaders leaving as well. How can we stem that? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for well, that. Uh, well, I brought it up, right? I brought it up. Yeah, so and we've, got about, we've got about 30 seconds. No, I'm only joking. Take yeah. as long as you need. No, I, yeah, so you're right. I don't think it's, it's certainly not just one thing that has caused all of this. It's all the, you know, the complex combination of all kinds of different things. But if, if there's one thing that I would mention, and it is a slightly nebulous, I understand that, but is to have, I, I have always found that if I look at all the expert groups that have been started and all the uh, advisory groups, et cetera, et cetera, I think they, in my opinion, they haven't really been a good representation of all the different voices that uh, exist. If you, if, you, I, if you look at, I would say, at some of the committees about teacher education, if I focus on teacher education, because you're right, it's much broader than that. But if I focus on teacher education, you know, there often was only one out of five, maybe, who would then, let's say, represent a teacher education. And they would say, well, but we talk with all kinds of other organizations as well. Uh, and I understand that in the end, you know, maybe decisions are made. If in a team of five people, four people say A and one person says B, then, you know, the majority wins and it's going to be A. But there are ways to make the the one of the five who doesn't get their way still feels hurt and you still do what the majority says if you see what i mean mm -hmm. and i think the only way to do that is to really have a and we talked about this in relation to discussions on social media or oracy or discussions talking with other people if you really listen and if you think about take the argument seriously and i realize completely that for some people take being taken seriously mean getting your way but i don't mean that i mean i i i was involved in local politics in the netherlands and there was one uh initiative for a sort of a health center that needed to be built and in the area there were lots of people who were unhappy with that because it was in their backyard so you, sort of not in my backyard uh, uh, would some people would say, "Oh, you're just you're just against because it's in your backyard." But we we as the local council, we we need to make a decision for the for the for the whole city, and the health center is really important. Uh, and some would wouldn't even talk with them simply because 
they were dismissed as NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard. Yeah. And I never understood that. I went there, but I did say my 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 base uh, viewpoint is that this health center is really important for the area. So that, that's where I come from, right? I, I was not going to be phony and pretend that that wasn't my starting point. But ask them about, you know, what are your what are your objections? What what is an issue, etc. And it always often has to do with these initiatives with parking or with with uh, the building being too high, etc. There are all kinds of very genuine uh, worries, and we can apply this to all kinds of things like Brexit, etc. Any political topic, really, any topic under the sun. Um, but I think I I listened well, and uh, also made a couple of suggestions, perhaps to them, but also to the planning committee that, you know, at least showed that I was listening to them and wanted to uh, find a solution. But in the end, the bottom line was that it was being built. And I re vividly remember that after that decision, and I voted in, in favor. So you could say, well, well, why you betrayed them? You, you didn't vote against. I never promised to do so, but I did promise to really listen and balance these arguments, etc., etc with a ground position at first being in favor of the health center. And I argued why in on balance of arguments, I said, I basically, I think, did some steel personing in the sense that I said, well, in favor of this and this, but these are objections, et cetera. So this needs to be changed. Uh, and this objection, well, yeah, that, that I, on balance, I think we should do it, right? So there was a binary choice. You either, in the end, you had to, I had to vote for or against something. Because I really think, to be honest, to abstain is is sometimes a coward's way, <laughs> to be honest. So I did do that. And then I spoke with some of the people in the area afterwards. And, and it was clear that they were disappointed, of course, with the decision. I understand that completely. But at least they appreciated that they felt, I think they said I was the only one, but maybe there were others as well. At least they felt hurt in this whole discussion because mm -hmm. I, I had taken my my job as a representative uh, in the local council seriously uh, uh, in the way that I think that it should be. And this is what I, I think is missing to some extent in these discussions when it comes to initial teacher education or any other uh, education policy topic under the sun. So, so could you just help me to make that link a little more clearly? How does that relate to the to the teacher education question? How can we get from where we are to a to a healthy, vibrant, um, well stocked teaching profession? Well, if you take, uh, yeah, so, so I'm going to focus on the ITE uh, link for now. So you know that there is the core content in, framework. Initial, initial teacher education, for, in case anyone's wondering. I yeah, see. initial teacher education, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so there is this early career framework and as a spin-off of the early career framework, there is this core content framework for initial teacher education, yeah. which is the content that needs to be taught. Um, that already, in my opinion, was done by uh, uh, too small a group of people, but okay. But let, let's accept that uh, part. Uh, and they are now actually asking for comments on the original core content framework, what knowledge needs to be taught. I think you really need to uh, start a dialogue on 
as I think they are attempting to do now, but the onus is all on the the the, the people who disagree. <laughs> and that shouldn't be the case, right? It should be a dialogue between people where you really go out to people and say, okay, you've introduced the core content framework. What are the issues that you have encountered? And then when as let's say group or as DFE, you hear this, you need to come with concrete suggestions that can mitigate these downsides. And that and my impression is, and it might be faulty, I don't know, but my impression is that this has not been done sufficiently. Uh, yeah. So I, I know it sounds a bit nebulous and vague when I say you really need to have dialogue with people, but we all know, I, th I think we do have some sense of when we have a good conversation and people are really listening, right? When you are mirroring, oh, you said this and this and this. How do you mean this particular word? We immediately know someone has been listening because of that. Um, if I would be saying, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And then I start my own story. Then we know someone has not really been paying attention and has been interested in all of this. And of course, I was not a fly on the wall in all these discussions. But simply the way that I think uh, some of these reforms have been introduced have been more in the latter way than in the former way. Where yeah. you, and especially if you do it in the former way, you should be able to explain why you didn't do some of these things. And I think that's that's something that is often missing. Uh, like we ask with PhD students when they do their research methods section, you can't just state, well, I'm going to do questionnaires. Uh, because I, I, when I came and started my PhD, I, I, that's what I wanted to do, questionnaires. You need to explain why questionnaires are the best method for answering your research question and also say why other methods are found wanting with <clears throat> regard to answering your research question. So you need to justify your choices. And yeah, I, I, right. I really think justification of choices is often uh, lacking. If you justify them and then you decide, well, or look, we had three arguments uh, for, uh, four against, uh, but one of the three that we were for, we thought was really the most important one. And therefore we decided to do it. That sounds much more reasonable than here's a document and, and this is what you need to abide to. Oh, yeah. but who, who was asked about these principles? And, and you talk about the, I also think sometimes it's a little bit too uh, attacking when you say, oh yeah, that's because this person was in this committee. So anyway, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with what you said. I think there's like so many of our problems stem from the fact that, that we have a very small group of decision makers who have, are often quite like-minded, who have shared experiences, like often policymakers who are all like educated in a similar way. And they have similar ideologies, like you say, and they, they're not looking at this in the round. And so they're making decisions that affect lots of people's lives without really having deliberated effectively and thought about it from every possible angle. And something that I've been working with recently is this idea of vertical sliced teams. So instead of having all of the decisions made by the people at the top of the school or the hospital or the political system, you take a slice through the community and you get representatives of different kinds of people sitting around the decision-making table together, not just as a consultation exercise, but actually as like the executive that's that oversees this particular 
way of this particular policy. And when we work in that way, it's, it's unbelievably effective. Um, and there's a lot more to say about that, but I have a call in two minutes from now. And so <laughs> we're going to have to, we're going to have to wrap this up um, for now. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to, 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 to speak with me today. I've really, really enjoyed getting to know you. I love uh, just chatting with you. You have a very, very interesting mind and the way that you can see the balance in things, you know, genuinely, you know, it feels like steel personing is, is something that comes quite naturally to you. You're very generous in giving concessions to people who, who oppose. And I think that you're right, you know, we need, we need more we need more dialogue to get us out of this pickle and more metacognition, dare I say. So so thank you very much. Enjoy suede. I am hugely jealous. Um, I'm hoping that they'll um they'll they'll come by this way soon. Um until the next time. All right. Thank you, James. See you. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.